Good evening and welcome to El Oso Fumar Takes. This is our 187th take live from the Alec Bradley Lone Star Studios of Euless, Texas. I'm your host, Barry Duplissy, as always, and I'm so proud, so pleased, and so privileged to be with you all tonight. It's my birthday episode. Yes, it's my birthday, and I can cry if I want to, cry if I want to, and I'm sure Steve might make me cry if I wanted to. But I'm really pleased that everyone's joining us tonight, and I've got some great, I have a great panel of guests for you this evening. It's, uh, it is my pleasure to bring them, but before we get to formal introductions, I do have to thank the people that make this show possible, and that, of course, is our sponsors, and tonight's show is sponsored by Drew Estate. Drew Estate is about to make someone a whole lot richer during its latest freestyle live show on the company's Facebook Live page. Drew Estate announced that they will hold a Bitcoin sweepstakes with numerous incredible prizes during upcoming freestyle live events, including a grand prize of one. Yes, that's one full Bitcoin for one lucky fan. It will be announced on February 17, 2022, of the edition of Freestyle Live. Entry into the unheralded Drew Estate Bitcoin sweepstakes is simple. During each of the company's three upcoming Freestyle Live events, we had one just a few uh, a few days ago on October 15th, but there's another one coming up on the 11th of November and again on January 20th. Be sure to tune in. The company will be randomly select one of the names of five people who attend those online shows and comment during the specific times in each broadcast. They will be one of the potential winners of an assortment of fantastic prizes, including one full Bitcoin. The five winners from each of these three shows will create the contestant pool for the 15 people eligible to win their grand prize Bitcoin. So tune in, tune in to Drew Estate's Freestyle Live's upcoming shows on November 11th and January 20th to get a whole lot richer. And thanks to Drew Estate. So without further ado, welcome to our 187th take. Yes, it is my birthday take. I am so excited to have my panelists of guests sponsored by United Cigars. Smoke one today. Start Living United. Misters Steve Saka and Luciano Mireles. Gentlemen, how are we doing tonight? Go ahead, Luciano, because I can't follow that. Go Do whatever you're going to do. <laughs> I'm good, my friend. Very good. I'm honored. Honored to be amongst uh, such heavy weights of our industry in all senses. We're already in with the fat jokes, man. We didn't even get 30 seconds into this. <laughs> all right. I see how this is going. All right. Unintentional. <laughs> it came so naturally. <laughs> Good to see you, Steve. <laughs> it's gentlemen, it's such a pleasure to have you guys both here today. I so I I started this tradition last year, and it was something um, you know something fun that I wanted to start. So I, I invited people not only in the industry that I, I that I really like, but um, I also consider friends. And uh, my my message to Steve actually when asking him to be on the show was literally. You, you made the mistake of actually admitting that to me, not once, but several times in com personal conversations that, you know, he actually liked me. So that's why I was actually inviting him. So uh, it was, it was, uh, it was you do, great. You do understand though, the threshold is really, it means I don't dislike you. I understand that. I understand <laughs> <Okay>. that. <laughs> Understanding the people that are below the bar though. I mean, I feel, I already feel like I'm on, you know. Oh, you're right. You're, well. you're in verified air that I don't dislike you. Yes. You're, you are correct about that. Exactly. So, and, uh, and Luciano Meros of Ace Prime, uh, again, a gentleman that I consider a great friend and have gotten to know very well over the last couple of years. It's, it's a pleasure to have you again on the show. And thank you so much for joining us too. No funny stories. I just asked you and, uh, and uh, you were happy enough to oblige, even though I didn't know you were abroad. I, I didn't even have a chance to like, like uh, you know get, get you give you an out you're like no i'm in 
I'll be in the Dominican. <laughs> Pleasure is mine, my friend. Pleasure is mine. Yeah, I'm here in Santiago, Dominican. Uh, just for, for a few days, then heading back to Nicaragua. All right. So the um, so the purpose. So I know the TAA is going on right now. So that's but that's obviously not why you're in the Dominican. You're in for another reason. Uh, you're you're no, looking at. Some I'm in the, I'm in the other side. Yeah, I'm in the other side of the country. I'm about four hours from Casa del Campo, where TAA is taking place. I'm uh, Santiago is like to the opposite side of the of the island, closer to Haiti. Mm-hmm. So no beaches here. Just, just tobacco. Just tobacco. Yeah, I was gonna say, but uh, another, another part of the country. There's a lot of traffic. I hate driving in Santiago. It's, it's one of the, it's one of the more difficult cities to drive around in. I mean, it's. Yeah. I mean, I've never been to India, so I don't know what that's like. But I mean, compared to any place else, I mean, Mexico City, Rio, all these other places that are considered yeah. nightmares. I, I think Santiago is one of the hardest ones. Yeah, because it's small and it's such so crowded. Uh, but I, I don't know. I was so scared with Esteli uh, a few days ago. It was just, just crazy down there, too. Yeah, well, the traffic in Esteli has gotten beyond stupid. The only thing about Esteli, though, is you never can move fast, so you really can't kill anybody. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you very rarely get any speed up at all because of the number of cars at this point. And between the cars and the motorcycles and the taxis, it's crazy. Well, speaking of travel, that was actually something that I wanted to talk about at first tonight. You know, Steve, you uh, you had the uh, misfortune of regaling several people who follow you on social media in the last couple of weeks of of the the saga that was your uh, your travel experience. Uh, so, so tell us how many how many vehicle changes exactly? What what, what I actually, transpired? I actually went through one, two, three vehicles. And even the third vehicle died, the battery died in it, but I just couldn't bring myself to go back to take it to them. So I, uh, I went to AutoZone and bought my own battery for the rental car. I never even posted about that because it just felt like the story was getting too fictitious. You know what I mean? Like, just, I don't even believe this anymore. So just going to suck it up and, and go forward. But look... Travel travel's always been difficult. Anyone that travels on the regular knows that it's very rare that you're going to go more than five or seven trips without a major something. Flight sticks you someplace, you miss a connection, bags are lost. So I, I, think, I think we all, all of us who travel nonstop, I think we just kind of like bake it into the cake. We complain about it. We whine about it. But at the same time, I think you get to a certain point that you just have to get kind of zen about it because it's just always going to be sucky. Travel just sucks. And it's one of the reasons why uh, Sydney and I, we, we haven't taken a proper vacation since 2014 because the whole concept of us going somewhere on vacation just 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 like great another plane another rental car another hotel another whatever i don't know maybe 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 luciano isn't as jaded as i am but i'm serious like if i didn't ever have to travel i I would be happy to not travel for a couple three years yeah no i'm tired too my friend and you gotta add all the covet tests you have to do in different countries and uh you know how 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 nightmare 
Yeah. It's now to go to uh, to Nicaragua and uh, Europe, everywhere. It's the same thing. Ecuador's a problem. Mexico's a problem. It's uh, most most of the countries you travel into, you got to have an inbound COVID test, and of course, we now have to have a return COVID test. And uh, and it's uh, look at it. It adds days, you know, on either side of the trip, and it becomes more complex. And then, I, God willing, I have tested negative on the umpteen million tests I've had in the last two years. But, you know, eventually I'm going to go positive on one of them, right? I just hope I'm in a country that I'm really familiar with and I'm not, you know, flying back from San Andreas, Tuxla and Veracruz. I, I know nothing about Veracruz other than where the airport is and how to leave the country. You know what I mean? So I, I hope if I test positive, I hope I test positive someplace like Nika, or at least I know a lot of people and whatnot. But you have no control over it, so... So that brought an interesting question to mind as far as, you know, COVID aside, just the last couple of years, how difficulties that painted. And then, of course, your story, Steve, and um, Luciano regaled me with a couple of his stories. And in fact, you know, he got off of a, of a plane to jump onto a show of mine one time as well, not too far back. Um, but, you know, just like epic, epic travel stories. Like, was there, was there other than, was this, Steve, was this last run of just unfortunate incidents was it probably one of the one of the worst runs you've had or is it no no this one was more look it just kind of changed my schedule Look, I, I haven't been visiting stores very much we've been too busy there hasn't been time i've been totally sitting on my ass too much in front of my desk or or i'm in nicaragua so i thought hey i have to go to nicaragua i have this one event in florida that's scheduled why don't I make it into a three week road trip, give myself a little time to decompress in the car because, you know, you just don't have any time to think you're so busy all the time. And I'll visit a few accounts along the way, not scheduled events, but just, Hey, pop in, say hi, say, thank you. Really appreciate the business kind of stuff. And regretfully, none of it happened. Um, I think the only person that got an unexpected visit was Lou Liga in Philadelphia because it was the next day that the truck died. And well, it was actually that evening. And, uh, and then it just all kind of went to hell from there. Was it that evening? No, it was the next day. It was the next day the truck died. So, and then it just kind of spiraled. And by the time I got to the end of it, I was just like, I'm just driving back home. I don't care. I mean, I'm not, I'm not good company on these podcasts. Imagine what it's like in person for God's sakes. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you, what about you, Luciano? What's uh? What comes to mind when you think of like just uh, like you know a horrific uh, horrific travel you know incidents? I guess. Dude, I I have I have traveled like so much. I I just got this email. I'm saying this not because you know just because it's it's just that uh, I am really tired of traveling. I mean, I've, I've been traveling. I think was this year completes 2.2 million miles. I was going to ask you years. how many million, how many million miles you've done. Yeah. I figured it was a couple. So I got the million mile, uh, miler with uh, with American, with United, you name it. So I mean, I've been to horrific situations. I have to sleep at the airport, uh, or I'll, you know, arrive somewhere where there's no hotels. Uh, but I think the the one I remember now is when my daughter got got married. She decided to get married during COVID when Paris was in lockdown, and she lives in Paris. So I had to travel. Uh, 
I remember I had to catch a flight from Boston to uh, Azores in Portugal, an island, and then get another flight into Lisbon and then take a train to, uh, to Paris because, uh, you know, the city wasn't locked down when she got married. So it was a nightmare. My wife couldn't make it, so it was just me. Uh, it took me about 17 hours to what normally would be a seven-hour flight from Chicago. So that, that was, a, that was a quite an experience, which was, of course, rewarded by, by being there when my, my daughter got married. So that was I've a- gotten stranded. I've gotten stranded in riots. I've gotten stranded between the two borders between Honduras and Nicaragua because of the closes at a different time than the other on me and I wasn't paying attention. I've I've been I got caught in a hurricane once, washed out a bridge after about 10 days of realizing they're not going to fix the bridge, having to get on a helicopter. Fat dude on a helicopter, not a fun ride. You know, you you start to realize, I mean, I had a trip in Honduras once where actually was mugged by two guys at AK-47. Thank God I wasn't kidnapped. I was just mugged. I mean, I've had so much over the last 30 years when I think about it. It's just so crazy. And I, I just, it, it's, it's part of our business that, you know, I just, I, I don't think people that, I don't think people have any clue how much most of the principles of the young companies that are grinding it out and are hustling and are trying to grow and keep their head above water. I I don't think they can even wrap their brain ahead around the amount of hours and the amount of travel, because it just, it's so absurd to even explain it just makes you sound like you're a whiny bitch. Um, But it, it really is just, uh, it is unbelievable the amount of effort it takes. And, and look, and it depends too how much, how involved you are. Are you actually involved in the tobacco? Well, that adds a lot of travel. Are you actually involved in the factory operations? That adds a lot of travel. Are you also the face of the company that's got to go out and dance like a monkey? That adds travel. And then you have some built-in things that you, you can't avoid, you know, there's certain, you know, customers that you have to go see every year, whether you want to, or you don't want to, you've got a couple trade shows, a minimum. And I think really three, we're at this point, once Dortmund starts again, you kind of, you're kind of locked into Dortmund, PCA and TPE at this point. So you got those three things. It, it, it It's a lot. It really is. I, I, and I, and I know that I have cut back on store visits personally, because as the company grows, I don't need to sell more cigars. I need to get more tobacco and I need to get production organized and I need to get all these problems that we're all struggling with right now solved. Selling more cigars, God, thank God at the moment is not, is not the major concern. So so I, I've cut way, way back on store visits, which is good for me because I'm not much of a, I like to hang out in the cigar store, I like to talk to people, but I don't, I don't really enjoy sales events. They've never been my cup of tea. Steve, let me ask you a question. Do you, uh, have you ever crossed the border from uh, Costa Rica to Nicaragua during the pandemic? Like right at the beginning, did you cross that border? I did not cross, I haven't crossed that border in probably six years. Cause there's just no reason for me to go to Costa Rica. So, you know, so I was, I was flying, I was flying back from that wedding 
uh, to Nicaragua. There's absolutely no flights unless, you know, if you make those crazy connections in Panama, as you know, there was just right. Avianca flying in. Oh, yeah, Avianca's the only direct. And, yeah. yeah so the I decided couple to fly. Ones are, they're just too risky because I got stuck on one of those that got delayed a day and it made my COVID test invalid. So then I got stuck in Panama having to get a new COVID test. So the whole COPA thing, I did it once. I got burned on it. I'm not doing it again. So it leaves you with Avianca, which blows. But what choice do you have? It's the only place that's flying direct currently. Now, supposedly, supposedly, Taka is saying or somebody else is saying that they're going to start in November flying direct flights out of Atlanta. I don't know if that's true or not. If, I mean, I hope it's Delta. I heard a rumor, but I'll believe it when I see it. I think at this point, I think the election is going to have to happen. I think that major airlines are just kind of waiting to see what the results are of the election and that not what the results are, but what the aftermath is. And then maybe in January, we could start to get some uh, some United flights or some, you know, American airline flights or a Delta flight back and forth. Look, the airlines are flying it. They're just not doing passengers right now because they are sending in flights for more cargo. But yeah, the only, right. So there's cargo flights flying by these major airlines, but there's not passenger flights flying by the major airlines. So I was uh, so I was telling the story. So I got into uh, to Costa Rica. It was my first time crossing the border. I came from the wedding, um, but the border was actually closed. They only open for uh, people that have residency or have a business or have a, a reason to cross the border. But it took me six hours under the sun, and they will come and bring my passport in and make me wait outside. And there's no place for it to drink water, do anything. Once you walk. Uh, from Costa Rica, you cannot go back unless if you immigrate again. Uh, so it was a it was a nightmare, man. Six hours outside waiting for them to clear my entrance into Nicaragua. That was that was terrible. And I actually ended up doing this once more, and then uh, oh fortunately I didn't have to anymore. So, but it didn't take six hours though. It was a little less, but it's painful. It's painful. Well, I remember you doing a. And you, Steve, you and I had this conversation um, off air, and then you were talking about it also on air too uh, on a couple of podcasts, where there was a there was a point in which you 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 hadn't been down to Nicaragua, and you you need to get down there at some point. And right. you, you were even considering a private charter, which would have just been probably. I mean, you would know, have been from Miami. Would have been about twenty two thousand dollars. Jeez. Yeah, twenty two thousand uh, from Miami to Managua. A private charter is about twenty two k. That, but uh, luckily it opened up, so you didn't necessarily have to do that. So that, yeah. Look, part of the problem for me is, I mean, January is when I'm starting to pick tobacco, right? Because typically in January the first harvest is coming out of the barn at that point. So I'm trying to pick the stuff that I want to put into polones. So it's a really critical time for me. The other problem is. I won't let them start production on anything new if I'm not there. So it meant that all the way from March of 2020 till January, 2021, uh, none of the things that were planned to be done in 2020 occurred because at that point you, you couldn't fly to Nicaragua. The only way you could get in was if you physically flew to Honduras 
or to Costa Rica and then did the border crossing. But even that was a little bit suspect uh, for a while there because you couldn't get a COVID test in uh, to goose until I guess it was like around a September or so. And I don't, I don't know, Luciano, about you, but Tegucigalpa is like one of my least favorite places on the planet. Any, anytime I can avoid yeah. going, I'm a happy man. There's nothing. There's it's just, nothing. It's just not safe, you know. Yeah, it's not safe to fly into. It's not safe to be in. It's just, and you know, look, I don't fit in. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a 350 pound white boy. I, I like literally. I, I can't even begin to blend. I am literally a flashing beacon every place I go in Central America. I mean, helps me in Nicaragua because a lot of people know me, right? And I have a lot of friends there. I've been doing business a lot there. Doesn't necessarily help you in certain places to be so obvious. Yep. Again, that's <laughs> So, gentlemen, I've got a couple of cigars here. I'm needing some help. Need some help choosing uh, what I'm going to be lighting up to smoke with y'all this evening. So, um, I've got two selections from Luciano. Uh, both very similar looking, but one is, has a little bit more age on it than the other. I've got Luciano the Traveler and Luciano the Dreamer. And uh, I don't even care what you're going to hold up. My vote is for Luciano cigar. Okay. Well, I figured. Well, no, that you, you you see, you're messing up my spin, Steve. I know you're not gonna you're not gonna pick your own cigar, which I'll still put up here. So I was yeah. gonna actually ask you which cigar of Luciano's you wanted me to smoke. I have the Elegante Encerrosa Bromesa and Stillwell Star, the uh, Bayou Number Thirty Two. Uh, no, Silver Mesa and Cedros is like six years old. I mean, so who wants to smoke that, right? And the Bayou. <laughs> The Bayou is something that uh, you really need to smoke and focus on. And the other reason why I don't want you to smoke one of my cigars, I would let him take the risk when it burns all bad on camera. That way you're smoking one of his. <laughs> God, challenge accepted. That's a very, wow. very good point. All right. Uh, yeah. Well, so which I think I think probably you're going to smoke uh, all of them, I assume, tonight. But I, I would say, well, at least two of them. I would say from, uh, I, I actually had the Sober Mesa the other day, uh, I think it was uh, John Huber who uh, gave me one, uh, Steve, and I, I really enjoyed it. So I definitely uh, suggest that. The only problem uh, with Sober Mesa Liga is it's kind of one of those ligas that's in the middle. You know what I mean? It's, it's a medium bodied, it's a balanced cigar, it's a nuanced cigar. It's a very, it's a very nice cigar and it's been selling really well and I'm really proud of it, but it's not one of those cigars that jumps out at you because it's kind of in the middle of the spectrum. You know what I mean? Whereas, you know, something like a brulee has a much more, you know, love hate kind of relationship with it. A tricky truck is more a love hate. You know what I mean? Where sober Mesa kind of fits into that middle kind of well. You know, not not typically very exciting for most bloggers. They tend to they tend to prefer the extremes. Yeah, like I think the the traveler uh, bear. You're probably the only one who has that cigar now. Uh, it's been sold out since end of 2019. Mm -hmm. We don't sell that anymore. Now the dream is a regular production. Oh, that's smoke. Uh, it's definitely don't don't smoke the one nobody else can buy. You're gonna rave about the one that yeah. no one. Screw that. 
Same thing for private too. So go go for the dreamer. Yeah, go for the dreamer. And this will this will make Steve happy because this is the uh, this the Lancero, isn't it? Exactly. It's it's in your uh, it's for you, Steve. Thank you. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate that. So uh, with uh, with this, uh, we'll be moving into tonight's major point, which is always brought to you by uh, our friends at Protocol Cigars. Power of the P. Tonight's major point is brought to you by the people. Cigar people, the people who know everything about a lifetime of service. Protocol Cigars is more than just pool parties and good times. Well, maybe it is. But behind the fun is motivation for service. Motivation for giving back and from the original Protocol Blue to the latest release in the Blahman series, Bass Reeves, Protocol has always been about honor, passion, and yes, the people. It's what their life's work has been and always will be about. Power of the P, Protocol Cigars. So tonight's major point, gentlemen, again, this I, I, I asked you and invited both y'all on, and you were kind enough to oblige me um, for my birthday, which is actually in two days. Um, but today is actually my, my son, my youngest son's birthday. He turned two. Um, so I wanted to ask about, about children's birthdays. I know all of us have kids. Um, now, do any of you have birth, kids' birthdays that are around your own birthday? I'm, I'm curious. I have a point where I'm going with this. I do not. I, okay. I do. Um, so uh, my daughter is just two days apart, just like you. Oh, well, there you go. That's ironic. Okay, yeah. perfect. Perfect. So, um, well, Steve, you're, you're, you, you don't have a birthday around any of the kids or anything, but I'm, I'm curious as to, so I was thinking about this today. Um, my, my, my wife, God bless her, put together this amazing party for my child uh, and just made it really fun, really cool, like, and, and also really made it really engaging for my oldest son. And she just did a terrific job. And then she was kind of like, oh, yeah, so what do you want to do for your birthday? <laughs> um kind of like as almost like kind of an afterthought and that's uh i'm not i'm not being disrespectful towards it i just thought about this is that like as you get as you have kids and you get older and everything that the your your own birthday kind of gets pushed off i think kind of how old are time. you there i'm gonna be 38 i'm 37 currently i'm gonna be 38 You're fucking old to be celebrating birthdays stop being a wuss what are you talking about birthdays are for <laughs> the only birthday you should be celebrating as a man is maybe your 18th maybe your 21st and then I'll give you your 50th and 75th. But beyond okay. that, come on, get real. Birthdays are birthdays are birthdays are something for kids. Okay. Birthdays, the other thing that birthdays are for is for women so they can lie about their age when they're adults. But no. Nah. 38-year-old man celebrating his birthday. Nah, I'm I'm not buying into it. I'm sorry. But you gotta remember, this is what happens when you're a white New England curmudgeon, right? latins they look for reasons to celebrate anything so every birthday is going to be a big party and a lot of fun so uh i'm sure uh, it's just kind of the way it works but you no you shouldn't be celebrating your birthday at 38 grow up so your last so the last birthday you celebrated was 21 or 18 which one was it my last birthday i celebrated was neither i was enlisted in the navy and deployed both times i think i got really drunk on my 21st yeah yeah, I'm pretty sure I was drunk. That's about the only. <laughs> that's uh, that's what you remember of it. Yeah. What about uh, what about you, Luciana? Do you uh, do you still celebrate birthdays? I do. It's kind of weird because I have uh, again, I have my kid that celebrates two days after me. So we we you know usually we always focus on in her. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I had a nice uh, 
had a nice party when I became 40, Steve. It's not 50. I'm, I'm 46 yeah, now. 40 is a milestone. It's not 38. What's 38? That's right. I'm, uh, so I'm waiting to celebrate my 50 now. It's coming. Like three, three and a half years, I'll be 50. That, so then, then that that so meets so the standard. That's that meets the Steve Saka standard for uh, for celebrating your birthday. So, so what? No, what, but no, I do I do celebrate. I do celebrate. I mean, one way or the other. Uh, sometimes I have to celebrate by myself because I'm traveling somewhere. But uh, I was lucky to have actually uh, my family around for the past couple ones. Uh, well, November nineteenth, you know, in just two weeks will be my my birthday, and uh, and I'll most likely be in California with my wife. And my nice. youngest kid. Nice, good times. I want so I want to I want to get back to this, Steve. Like so, so Cindy's never tried to throw your birthday party ever. She knows oh. you that well. Oh yeah, she's too smart to try that. <laughs> she knows that's a bad idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm too picky about everything. <laughs> so what was the what was the last thing that you celebrated? Like had a you know like. Party oh, but look, my son just got married, so obviously there was a celebration for that. Um, so my oldest son got married. Um, before that, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I've never been big on parties. I've never been birthday big on birthdays, and and part of the I think part of it has to do with children. Young children are what make these things fun and worthwhile, and. You know, Christmas isn't the same when, look, my sons are 37 and 35. There's no, oh, my God, I can't wait to open the package kind of joy anymore. You know what I mean? You, you, you need young kids around. And, that, and that's what really makes, you know, these type of things, particularly birthdays and Christmas and, you know, Easter and these type of holidays, a lot of fun and not, and not, and not having, you know, grandchildren um kind of kind of puts a damper on all of that so um it's it's been quite a while i've never uh the other thing too is because of all the travel and all the public appearances i mean me i just kind of want to play the tortoise you know stick my head in the sand like an ostrich and just kind of ignore the world a little bit so it's kind of i'm i'm definitely the i'm the king of uh Hey, just let me let me crawl in a hole and just try to zone out for a couple of days so I can get the energy to get back to the grind of it all. So, Luciano, you had a you had a child that just got recently married as well. Um, did you did uh, did cigars play any part of the ceremony at all or reception rather not ceremony, but the reception at all? Did you guys have like a, did you make a special cigar for your uh, to commemorate the event or? It was so weird because we, we went, well, people get married in, in, in France in a city hall. I mean, they have to have the, the like the official ceremony and then they can have the ceremony at the church later if they want to. Uh, but in that case, my daughter decided to have everything done at the city hall. It's beautiful, historical building, amazing place. Everybody was wearing masks and, you know, besides the groom and the bride. Uh, and, you know, we stayed outside. It was, it was a nice weather. We ended up going to, uh, to a restaurant for the reception. We all smoked cigars, but nothing special. I just brought a bunch of cigars with me and just passed them along. Uh, you know, we, we're living weird times, but she was happy. Everybody was happy. Uh, but, you know, I want to I want to say something that Steve just pointed out, and I, which I empathize quite a bit. Uh, I, it, You know, Beck, because you know me uh, for a while, I, I, I do have to live with this uh, weird disease that I have, right? So which can make, it, make me sometimes uh, very socially awkward. 
uh, in a sense that I get really tired of the small talks and just going to events and, and just kind of, you know, talking about the weather all the time and, and how, how wonderful my cigars are. And I really get tired of this. Uh, and I enjoy a lot meaningful conversations, you know, and I have like something to, to discuss that's meaningful. Uh, usually when I go to cigar events, I, I, as you know, I like to deconstruct cigars. I bring leaves with me. Uh, it's part of my, my therapy too. And, uh, and I, I want to talk about, you know, uh, everything but superficial stuff. So I, I, it ties me up a, a lot. So I, I really empathize what Steve is saying because, I, you know, it's, it becomes sometimes really tiresome. And, uh, and what, what, I, what you said, Steve, also about, you know, being a, a company who's, that's growing that requires you being everywhere all the time. Uh, it's, it can be extremely uh, stressful. You know, I mean, uh, I, I, I grow tobacco, I, I, I make cigars, and I have to, to be the face of, of, of our brands. And it, it is, it is uh, very, very stressful sometimes. And I, don't uh, think, I, mean, I don't think most people, Luciano, really understand the work. They really don't. They, yeah. they, think, they think they have this vision that it's very luxurious and glamorous. And the reality yeah. is... It's really dirty, hard work. I mean, it, it really, really is. And and then when you add in the, hey, I have to put on the suit, which I don't ever put on the suit anymore, thank God. But, you know, and then you have to do that whole thing. It, it, really, add, it really adds to it. And the other thing, too, is, and you have to put on a good show. I mean, you have to be engaging. You have to be energetic because, I mean, these people have come out of their way to come and see you and, you know, learn more about your products and your brands. And you really just kind of want to, you know, just kind of grump in the corner. Look, we've all seen this. Anyone that watches these podcasts, we've all seen the principal of a company who just kind of plops himself in a corner and he just starts looking at his cell phone and he's not really engaging with people. And the reason why is because you, you just kind of get burnt out. So like for me, just to make sure I don't, I'm not guilty of that sin. I, I turn my phone off um, when I'm at events so that it never comes on my pocket. It just, it stays there. And I also, I always try to make an effort to try to talk to everybody in the room. Um, sometimes that's not possible. Um, I miss some people, but it, it's certainly not by intent. But I, I always try to have a conversation with everybody on a, on a one-to-one or at least on a, Hey, like, well, like with the doll shop 75th anniversary it was about me, you know, spending time at each and every table, not just doing my 10 or 15 minute, you know, toast to Zach and the owl shop and talk about the products, but you also, you want to, you want to, you want to spend some time with these individual consumers too. And what's weird as much as I grump about it, I grump getting there. I grump with the aftermath, but in the moment, I'm good. So when I'm there and I'm doing it, I am genuinely enjoying myself. It, it isn't an act, um, but the uh, but the front end and the back end, it gets it gets a little, it gets a little. It's kind of same thing with these podcasts, man. You know, it's like I I did one two days ago. I'm doing one with you. Well, not two days ago. I did one on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. I'm doing another one tomorrow. I'm doing another one on Wednesday. It's a lot. And you're like, man, what the heck am I going to say that doesn't A, make me sound like an idiot, B, that I haven't already said a thousand times before, you know, and you're always worried that 
if I'm bored listening to myself speak, I can't imagine how other people are. They've got to be just going out. They got to be like him again. Really? Well, there's there's a certain element of comfortability that you both bring when you're talking about things like, for instance, like tobacco. I mean, so so when you guys are doing events, like you said, in, in, in for for different reasons, you, you'll you'll find that that part of the job, uh, you know, difficult to tiring to taxing, you know, you know, whatever, whatever adjective you want to throw on it. I mean, when do you feel most comfortable? Is it when you're actually talking about uh, talking about tobacco? What what's your what's your comfort zone when you're when you're at these events? For me, question for me, for me, uh, for, for for both ask questions. When customers ask questions are really what leads me to give them the best conversations. Because for me, I've talked about pretty much everything. I think I've talked about pretty much everything and I don't really know sometimes what to say or not say. So when one or two of the customers ask a tobacco oriented question or a cigar oriented question, whether it be about the manufacturing of cigars or the business of cigars or branding or something about the industry or something about how we harvest or how we cure anything like that for me it, it just makes my life so much easier and it makes the experience better for the consumer and for the person there because it kind of gives me a jumping point as to oh well let's talk about this whatever it might be rebrote you know what i mean how do you, what is rebrote how is it grown how is it harvested what is the purpose of it What's it do to the soil? Why is it popular with some people, not popular with other people? It just can literally lead into a 45-minute conversation about something as stupid as rebrote. But the thing is, the average consumer hasn't heard about it. So for them, it's a very interesting conversation. And I like being able to share those kind of details. So is so to an audience that is that you're not as familiar with or who are truly interested in something that you, you may have still talked about it a thousand times, but when they're still asking for the, the first time, that kind of gives you energy. Yeah, absolutely. It make, and, it, and it makes my life much easier too. That's fair. Yep. I would say uh, it's, the same, it's the same for me. Uh, I want to shout out actually uh, one a recent event that I had last, I mean, two weeks ago. Uh, it was uh, in Texas, at Industrial Cigars. I think they're out of Frisco, I think. Uh, it was, uh, I've never seen what these guys do before in my life. It's just amazing. You know, the level of hospitality they have with their customers, and of course they had with me as well, was amazing. But also, they did something, Steve, that I, I never experienced. I don't know if you had this before, but they mic me uh, during the entire event. So uh, people would be able to ask questions and I'll be able to answer. So, and suddenly we had this crowd of, I don't know how many people, like 60, 65 people, all asking questions. and. This is truly what re-energizes anyone who's involved in this business. You know, it's being able to uh, talk about what we love, but also uh, speak the truth. I, 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 I'm sure I probably heard me saying this before, uh, but I believe that humanity is craving truth. That's why, I, I, you know, that's one of the things I like about your personality, Steve, is that you, you just you just say what you think, and this is this is awesome because our industry is so full of bullshit. It's so full of uh, of stories and and. And, and I see, I was watching a few shows, you know, this week where people keep repeating the same story and, and it, it becomes, a, you know, a true for them. It's, but it's not, doesn't translate the reality of, of what we do. 
But I think the uh, thing so, is, for most people, Luciano, you got to understand they're they're four or five steps removed from the product. I mean, their only experience in a factory is maybe going on a couple factory tours and walking through and us pointing, well, here's where we do this and here's where we do that. And this is what, you know, even, even such basic things like how we dry the tripa before we put it on the floor. Most consumers have no clue that we all have ovens in our factory. And then we all bring, we put the tripa in there the day before and every factory is a little different, how long they run that for and at what temperature to dehumidify it because uh, bear, we have to wet the wrapper and we have to wet the binder to make it elastic. So we over moisten that, but then we also have to take moisture out of the tripa before we go to make the bunches, because if we don't, we'll never get the right quantity of the tobacco in the cigar. The feel of it's entirely wrong. It compresses too much. You need, you need a little bit of that dry texture crinkle to uh, give you the air channels necessary and the way you do the bunching. And so there's something that's like very, very basic that we do all the time that I've never read in a single book about, hey, we dry the tripa before we put it on the factory floor the next day. Or and often most companies do the night before and then they do a little bit in the morning. The guys that run the ovens come in and do it so that everything's ready by the time people get there in the morning. And I mean, such a simple, basic step to the manufacturing cigar. I think that 99% of the people that have actually visited a factory have never even been shown that room or explained. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. And that's exactly, yeah. that's exactly my point. I think uh, and you see this with the wine consumption. Uh, if you look, you know, how much people are consuming wine every year, more and more, it's because they have information. People like to brag about their vintages, the region of the wines, where they come from. It's because information is being provided. In our industry, I, I, I believe it's changing, but I dream of a day where there will be no mysteries anymore. People just know. And I think that the more they find, they find out about these things, that we dry the tripa, that we, uh, you know, there's three different types of humidity. When you, when, you, uh, when you bunch a cigar, you have 100% humidity on the wrap or 70% on the binder, 30% on the fillers. So they understand that cigar needs to rest. And, uh, and when you see uh, another, another myth that I, I, I love to kind of bust is like building the build the long ash you know right. people don't know that actually the more the more under fermented the tobacco is the easiest it is to build ash the fresher the tobacco is the more humidity there's in the tobacco the easier it is to build ash so you're not supposed to build long ash because you're going to smoke tar you're going to get the unpleasant flavors of the tar so things like that i love to kind of discuss with uh you know in those events and, and inform the consumer so he can uh you know when he buys a cigar he knows what he's consuming. He knows what he's putting in his mouth. And I think that increases consumption as well. It definitely does with the current age group. I mean, as much as, and I've mentioned this a few times recently, um, as much as everybody likes to bag on millennials, they're actually a perfect customer for our industry um, because they like the details. They like the knowledge. They like to research everything. And cigars are something where there's a lot of meat on the bone. There's a lot to dig into, to learn about. And that's really right up their alley. And the other thing that works really well for us is not only are they a consumer that wants to be educated, they also are, tend to be discerning consumers. And they also tend to not be so price sensitive. They're definitely much more a quality over quantity crowd. 
And that's a real shift in our business uh, that I've seen really, it started about 25 years ago, but this millennial age bracket has really embraced it more than any other to date. Yeah, I think it's the, the some of the details I want to kind of unpack a couple of comments that you both made there, because it, it's funny you mentioned about the 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 process there, Steve, as far as the drying of the tripa, because I thought about that. I, I, I've, I've rolled only a couple of cigars in my life. Um, and I remember uh, one of the first experiences I had, I was at a factory and mostly I was just concentrating on not cutting my my fingers off with the chevette. But other than that, I did notice that I was like, why? I was like, man, there's so much elasticity to the to the wrapper and to the binder. And yet the filler seems so dry. I'm I'm almost scared to break it. But you are going to break it. That's the point. Some of it's going to break. And I think that's another fallacy that we have in our industry about the fact that long filler cigars don't have broken tobacco in them. They all have broken tobacco in them. Some of them it's broken during the bunching process, but part of it's broken during the the bunching process in the way that we make cigars outside of Cuba. You got to understand that in Cuba, tobacco is much shorter. Okay. It's a much shorter leaf. So in Cuba, when they do a break, they only do one break. They break from the center and they flip it back. There's a single break. And that's the reason why when you dissect a Cuban cigar, it all looks like it's all one long leaf piece. It's really the same long leaf that's been broken in half and flipped backwards is the way it works. But our tobaccos are so much longer than what we tend to do in most other countries is we tend to do two breaks. We tend to do a break from the front and flip it. And we do a break from the back and flip it. And then we can get into whether we reposition those flips. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't, depending on what you're trying to achieve. But it makes a difference when you die. And also what makes a difference too is, you know, it's like a Lieberman. Um, You know, some people are very anti-Lieberman because they don't fit into the purest mold. But the reality is almost probably 95% of the handmade cigars that everyone smokes today are made on Lieberman's. Very few cigars are entirely bunched all the way from hand anymore. But even with a Lieberman, there's a lazy way to use a Lieberman and there's a proper way to use a Lieberman. If you're still forming the bunch in your hand by feel, and then you go to lay it in the Lieberman is one thing. If you're just using the trough of the Lieberman and just pushing the tobacco in the Lieberman, well, that's a much different style cigar, even though they're both produced the bunch out of the Lieberman. And a lot of times what you'll find is for expediency, particularly when you're using lower quality tobaccos, they'll just fill the trough and they'll bunch right in the Lieberman and they won't be doing the the tubing like you would expect them to be doing in their hand. They're more just kind of doing like a real quick crinkle crunch fold and dropping it in. And then what ends up happening is that when it comes out of Lieberman, they don't worry about the butts and they don't worry about the tips. They just cut both ends off. Well, what's really weird about that is if I were to dissect a cigar made in the Dominican Republic and I saw that it was all one continuous leaf, that actually is an indication to me of a lower quality made cigar than one where I would actually find the broken pieces in. You know what I mean? Because it depends on what the broken pieces are. If the broken pieces are shattered tobacco and, you know, picadura and all of that, then yeah. But you can tell the difference by looking at it as to whether, oh, well, these were long leaves that were just broken naturally in the process of bunching the cigar. And anybody that has made cigars and torn apart thousands of cigars 
it becomes very quickly identifiable what you're looking at as to how that cigar was made. If I, if, if I may add a point to, uh, to what you said, Steve, I think you, you're absolutely right. And also, uh, the, the soils of Cuba are completely different than the soils of Nicaragua. So one thing we, we all know is that the tip of the leaf has way more concentration of nicotine and strength, so, uh, especially Nicaragua. So when, you break, when we break the tip of the leaf and you put upside down, so what you're doing is creating some sort of consistency. Sometimes, actually, that tip goes in the bottom. Right. Sometimes you remove the bottom, the bottom goes in the top, and that tip goes in the bottom because you want to create consistency and strength and flavor. Because uh, especially with Lanceros, we're smoking Lancero right now. Mm-hmm. Usually when, the way they make the Lancero is using the longest leaves so they can make the seven and a half uh, length. Uh, however, if most, most of the problems with Lanceros is construction. You get plugged right in the center because you put an entire leaf in the center the center has more biomass than the tip and the bottom. So it gets plugged right there in the center. And the second problem is uh, you have a, 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 a absurd change in, in the taste profile. So you start at, because the burn has the tip. So you start with a, with a strong smoke and then it mellows so much that when you're halfway through, you just don't, don't have any flavor anymore in the Lancero. So the, 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 the whole concept of building a Lancero is to make sure that that Lancero draws well and has uh, consistency. So the, you know, the, the strength and the flavor doesn't melt. Like Lanceros, I do much. no breaks at all. So me personally, I'm just gonna tell you how I do it. I do no breaks in a Lancero. I do it completely long and I do the leaf backwards typically. I have some of the leaf that's pointing to the rear and I have other leaf that's pointing to the other direction so that I end up getting that, the, the because as, as Luciano said, the, the tips always have more power. They have more strength. They have more nicotine. And that's why when you're making a larger format, it's much easier for you to reposition those within the bunch. Whereas when you're making a very narrow format, like a 38, it gets to be a lot more difficult. And for me, where I struggle the most with Lancero construction isn't so much in the bunching process. Where I find most of my errors end up happening is in the... Uh, in the rotation and the molds, because what ends up happening is the Bonchero, you know, most Lancero molds, most molds have 10 cigars in them, right? A lot of Lancero molds will have 12 cigars in them because there's physically enough space for 12. And then what you'll end up doing is once they're in the press, we have to rotate those cigars, depending on what your personal preference is. Typically less time in a poly, more time in a poly mold, less time in a wood mold, but whatever it is, at one point we rotate the cigar 90 degrees. The reason we rotate the cigar 90 degrees is not to make the press even. The press would be even if we just left it alone. The problem is we get the seam lines from the press. So when we rotate the 90 degrees, it's really more about getting that seam line out than anything else because it's going to show up when we pass the wrapper over the bunch. So what ends up happening in Lanceros is because they're so long and skinny, when they lift them out of the mold and they rotate them 90 degrees and they go to push them back in the mold, they can tend to torque them. The, their right hand goes a little to the right and their left hand goes a little to the left and it can introduce a, a slight twist to the bunch as they're putting it back in the mold because it's so long and skinny. Now that same torsion happens with a large format but it doesn't cause enough to cause the bunch twist. 
So that twist is a problem. So for me, what I've gotten to happen over the years to get the Lanceros to draw consistently is I have the bunch, I have the Boncheros when they do the rotation that they can't push it back into the mold like they normally would. I want them to use the tips of their fingers so I know they're using direct straight down force. The problem is this is just physically uncomfortable. They don't like to do it. So it's one of these things where I have to get somebody that's willing to do it even when I'm not looking or Michael's not looking or Miguel's not looking that they're going to do the right thing every time and not just be lazy about it. So that, that, that's one of the areas that I struggle with Lancero construction is the twist on the flip. So there is a guy, uh, the late Arsenio Ramos, you, you, you probably know him. Uh, Steve. Yep. He was, uh, he was the, I would say he was the living legend of fermentation. Unfortunately, he passed uh, three years ago. I was fortunate to have him as a mentor for many years. He invented uh, something very unique in building on Cerros, which instead of using large leaves, he would use very small Ligeros. Right. All of Cerros with Ligeros. He would never use Volado or Seco, just, just Ligeros or sometimes Viso. One leaf of Seco on the outside. And instead of actually using a long leaf, he would use small Ligeros and he will uh, intersect them. He will uh, uh, stagger them okay. uh, in a way that the tip, the tip of the leaf, uh, of one leaf goes in the center. Okay. And then you have another tip at the bottom. So it's it's a little of a waste, but at the same time, you get this perfect draw. And then since we started with this process, I mean, it was a, it's mind blowing because you have consistency and strength because you have three tips spread all, you know, throughout the bunch. And at the same time, you solve the problem uh, of the draw because now you don't have that concentration of tobacco in the center. All the thick tobacco in one place, right. Yep. So that's how that would be something new for me to try. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, Gerardito, Gerardo, uh, Arsenio's yeah. son, uh, and he's, he's probably watching here because he's a, he always watches the shows and uh, he, uh, he's the one who's perpetuating that same technique as, as we are with the Lanceros. takes a lot of time. Uh, usually uh, if, uh, if a table is making 350 cigars a day, uh, just to make a Lancero, you know, in a traditional way, we probably go down to maybe 150, 180. But doing this, using this method, it's probably about less than 100 cigars a day that, you know, a, a, a table can really bunch. But, you know, it's worthwhile. I mean, we, yeah, but, but we've seen the results. But my all of those things, Luciano, is it doesn't matter if the consumer is willing to pay what it costs. If the yeah. consumer is willing to absorb the bill of what it costs, to do these different techniques that are more complex or to use unique tobaccos that you have way more money invested in than what's their worth, you know, then, then I'm okay with it. Um, you know, and it's one of the things that you always have to understand. I mean, factories are just built on the concept of being efficient. Pennies matter, tenths of a penny matter. And sometimes you have to, get them to break out of that mindset about everything. There's places where that mindset is the absolute correct mindset, but there's other places that it isn't. And to get them to go for the right products, the right way. And that's part of what I call kind of the gringo factor. It's kind of something that this is where the world has become so much more flat. You now have someone like, you have people now like Luciano that actually work with tobacco and make cigars and have real experience. And they're now talking directly to consumers that that did not exist 30 years ago. It didn't even exist right. 20 years ago. I was really one of the first 
people that started doing it. And I wasn't doing it as firsthand knowledge. I was doing it as second, third, and fourth hand knowledge. And I was really just sharing what somebody else had shown me or somebody else had taught me. Um, and, and that's something that makes the world much different now that consumers are now actually getting access to people that really do some of the work. And that makes a huge difference. But you still don't really get much of an opportunity to talk to like real growers or a lot of people that do a lot of the day in, day out and pre-industry. And look, for me, cigars are factories are where good tobacco goes to die and they just fuck up cigars. That's what they do in a factory. Okay. All, all the real work is done in pre-industry. Uh, the materials are really the critical part. The, the factory, the factory is all about standards, practices, methodologies. It's a, it's very simple. It's not, I don't want to say simplistic, but it's something that you could do any place with some tables and cutters, right? It's really more about just getting the standards and the practices down and then enforcing it with an iron fist that this is the way it has to be. But all the real magic actually occurs long before the factory. Now, there are some cigar makers out there that I've met in my life that can take really shitty tobacco and they can really elevate it and they can make it into something much more. Um, I don't happen to be that guy. Okay. I, I, I tend to prefer to work with all the best materials and it makes my life a lot easier, but there, there have been some people over the years that they really have an amazing talent at taking some of these inferior grades and really producing some pretty smokable cigars. Can't produce greatness out of it. But you know what? You you can produce something that's decent and enjoyable. So, Luciano, yeah, you mentioned something that I want to kind of unpack, and I want to make sure I understood you right. You were talking about ash. So, yes, this is about to blow my mind if, the, if I heard you correctly. So, for my entire smoking life, I have heard and I have practiced this, that when you're smoking a cigar, you you smoke it until the ash falls off. Were you telling me that that's wrong? Or what were you saying uh, about ash? Kind of. Uh, what, what, I, what I told you about ash, which is uh, a myth buster, is that the, what I said is the, 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 most, uh, the more under-fermented the tobacco is, the more ammonia you have to create uh, the uh, connection between the biomatter and humidity. So the more ammonia you have in the tobacco, the easiest it is to build a long gash or the more humidity you have also have helps to build the long gash so it's not that you have to wait until the ash falls to kind of go to your uh i mean to stop smoking it's it's quite the opposite so when you're smoking you, you don't want to have any heat in the cigar you want to smoke a cold smoke right so when the cigars start heating up too much it's time to rest the cigar the ash is very important keeping a, an inch to two inches of ash is extremely important to uh, keep the cigar lit. And that's the function of the ash, is to keep the cigar lit. Now, if you have a flaky ash, like an ash that's just falling all the time, also is a, is a sign of a poor, uh, I mean, poor construction or too much volado, too much thin leaves that are used in that, in that cigar. Some cigars are actually taste extra extraordinary, but they, uh, they don't hold a, a big ash. The ash is, the ash is more, a little more flaky. It's because sometimes you're building a tour instead of using eight leaves, using nine leaves, using more volado, more seco. 
Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. But but there is a myth about you know holding the edge for too long. This competition, Rocky put together. I tease him all the time. Like he put together this this competition of building the the longest ash as if the long ash is a sign of a good construction. So this is another myth. So a good construction, you see after you ash it out, when you ash it out and you look at the, the chisel, you look how the, 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 the leaves are positioned in the cigar, now you can say how good or how bad the construction is. If it's tunneling or, or if it's proper fermented, you see exactly how, uh, how good the construction is. But if you build a very long ash, actually you're not seeing the construction. You're just trying to kind of, Again, I'm not criticizing who does it. I think it, you know, it's fun. I have a lot of friends who like to do this. You know, again, right. but it's, it's just it's one of those myths. We do as cigar people or tobacco men. I'll tell you what we care about. We want the ash to be. We like the ash to last about at least three quarters to an inch, because it serves as the insulating blanket over the cherry right. of the cigar. Exactly. It evenly distributes the heat. It allows the cigar to smoke cooler. Uh, these pictures of these three inch long ashes, they're nice, but it sets up an unrealistic expectation for the consumer. We, we don't design cigars construction wise for them to create these three and four inch ashes. This is not something that we ever care about. We do care that the ash stays firm and intact enough to keep the, the blanket over the cherry because you just get a better burning cigar when that happens. But the rest of it is really pretty much for Instagram photos only. Wow. It isn't really an indicator of quality or not quality into the cigar. Um, and the other thing 100%. too, thing, and the reason why those thinner materials tend to be flakier is they also, when you frog strip them, their central ribs are just much thinner. When you're using heavier tobaccos, a lot of the heavier Nicaraguan stuff, we frog strip it, those central ribs are pretty thick and they kind of almost serve as rebarb in the center of the ash. So cigars that are made out of heavier materials properly will tend to hold an ash longer, but a cigar can be made perfectly properly out of thinner materials and it'll never ever hold that ash because the materials will not allow it to hold the ash. But I think most cigar makers like to see an ash of about an inch. And then anything past an inch is just, oh, well, that's bonus. Great. Whatever happens, happens. But uh, yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly nothing that I've ever focused on or anyone that I've ever worked with has focused on. 100%. And I'm seriously, and also, blow, my mind's blown right now. Like, I've, yeah. <laughs> this is one of my goal of smoking a cigar every time I light up is, is, to, is to hold the ash for as long as, as possible. That's funny. No, and also, I mean, I've seen some people like building the ash where the the the, the ash is bigger than actually the the actual uh, left uh, left part of the cigar. Right. And basically, what you're doing, you're smoking tar. You're smoking the ash. Right. So you're smoking. You bring all, all that, that through the ash to your palate. Right. Why are you even doing that? It doesn't make any sense. You you waste you wasting a, a you're wasting money. You're wasting a good you know money you pay for a good cigar, and now you're just trying to kind of you know build the ash. And I see a lot of people posting those Instagram photos saying, look at the construction cigar, how long it is. I'll tell you what, grab a very cheap cigar that's under fermented and try to build the ash. It's going to build perfectly. You know, the, again, the more ammonia, the easiest it is to build ash. Uh, the more fermented the tobacco is, the harder it is to build the ash. Build it like a long ash. You want to, like Steve said, keep like an inch, two inches max. Uh, just to serve as a blanket to, uh, you know, keep the, the, the unified, the, the, the consistency the of the burning, but that's all. 
Yeah, the cherry. That's it. If this, this, I'm uh, seriously, my my mind is blown. It's also uh, like it's like <laughs> the whole it's like the whole conversation about the color of the ash. The color of the ash is really irrelevant. Certain tobaccos just burn dirtier gray, and others to burn much, much whiter. Now that has to do with the soil, right, Steve? But it, that, but not not necessarily. It has to do with the combustion, the full combustion of the tobacco. But it depends on the tobacco. Some tobaccos will just naturally burn whiter. Okay, they'll just get a much finer combustion through them, particularly your thinner materials than your heavier materials. Typically, the heavier the material, the darker the ash is ultimately going to be. It's just the way it is. It isn't really a reflection. Now, if I was smoking some really, really thin Dominican grown olor and it was all gray and all of that, I'd be kind of like, hey, this isn't quite right. This should be combusting much cleaner. But if I'm smoking something from Perez and ASP Viso, if I saw it burn white like that, I'd be like, what's going on with this tobacco? This isn't quite right. This tobacco should be kind of gray with some black flecks in it. So it's kind of like knowing what the standard is. You know what I mean? I, I watch the dog show. I see them judge best in show. To me, all those dogs look equally beautiful, but they know exactly how the tail is supposed to be and how long it's supposed to be and what the shape of the jawline should be and how wide the chest should be. It's kind of the same thing with the tobacco. It's, it's, it's relative to the individual leaf as to what the anticipated color of that should be when it burns yeah so, uh you, you know what do you want you want to you want to bust out their myth please <laughs> so there's this expression that uh, people use a lot in the united states which is comparing apples to apples right so you, if you want to compare something it has to be apples to apples but even apples are different right so if you if you slice a uh, a green apple or a gala apple it will take about 30 minutes for you to see the yellow dots of fermentation in that apple. But if you slice a crispy apple or a Fuji apple, uh, because of the sugars, you see the fermentation happening in 30 seconds, visually. So you can see the yellow dots in that apple in 30 seconds. So in tobacco, is the same thing. There are some leaves that I'm going to age for 10 years. We never get into the same color of, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a good example here of the HBN09 or, or any Corojo, you know, 98 to 2012, they're never going to get that dark. That expression, Avano Oscuro, it's bullshit. I'm going to say it again. Avano Oscuro, bullshit. So you can get a San Andres, which is the uh, the crispy apple. So the San Andres will get dark really quick. So you have uh, eight months of pilon, you see the very dark leaf. In the Avano, I can age for 10 years. You, you, you have only three classifications of Havano. You have the Havano Colorado, the Havano Rosado, and you have the natural, the natural. So it basically, those shades are defined in the hanging marks. They're not defined in the fermentation. It's, it's for how long you dry the leaf that will determine exactly the shade of that leaf. Uh, but you see a lot of people saying, you know, oh, my, I have a Havano Oscuro. Dude. But that, a lot that of that's done in a cold exist. I mean, a lot of a lot of manufacturers employ calderas and they use them to get the tobacco to be yes. what they want it exactly. to be. Because the we consumer, wish. the consumer is shopping with his eyes first. The sad That's part right. about when you use the caldera is yeah, it gives you a very dark, even appearance, but it also you're giving up oil and natural flavor in the exactly. tobacco. 
when you use the culture. It's it's like this is thing like you can always push broadleaf to be really even dark oscuro. You always can. Mm-hmm. The problem is when you push it to that point, you're sacrificing flavor along the way. So the question for you in pre-industry is, when have I achieved the right balance between the aesthetic that I need to make my customers satisfied, but also I'm not giving away too much flavor. You know, I'm not sacrificing too much oil just in the chase of a color. And it's one of the reasons why I always tell consumers, like particularly with a tobacco like Broadleaf, Oftentimes, the ugliest broadleaf wrappers sometimes tend to be the most flavorful broadleaf wrappers. The more veins, the more modeling, the more spotting, oftentimes ends up actually having the most punch and the most flavor from from that particular tobacco. But you can't put that on a $15, $20 luxury ultra premium cigar. It, It just ultimately, because of its appearance, ends up having to go on a lower grade, lower price point product. When in reality, oftentimes that has even more flavor than the even the higher end ones. hundred uh, percent, ab- absolutely true. This is like one of my favorite cigars to smoke because I love the flavor of the tobacco. I love the, the flavor of the broadleaf, and I know you're you know this family pretty well. Uh, is Topper? You know they're machine rolled like the ebony and like I mean that is they that is some just ugly looking leaf i mean there's no other way to say it but the flavor on it is just absolutely fantastic i love smoking it but yeah like you said it's nothing like you you couldn't you couldn't throw that on you couldn't throw that that leaf specifically at that point in its aging process or the way that it looks aesthetically and throw it on your throw it on a micarita and expect to expect to to well maybe you could but like (laughs) expect you know that that it just wouldn't it doesn't have that that same quality as that we know of me carita cigars right you, know? you have a certain you have a certain expectation and look other wrappers are very easy to get them to be beautiful the ecuador grown habanos are notoriously an easy leaf to make a very aesthetically appealing cigar no you can never make a true maduro out of one the best you can hope is with a dark rosado kind of hue to it but that's the best you're going to get out of it because you can't push it unless you you put it in the caldera. And look, uh, Drew Estate wasn't the first person to use that stock cut Habano seed, uh, the T-52 seed. Um, General was ahead of us by years on that project. The difference was they weren't willing to go through the effort for the natural fermentation because it took so long to get it to where it needed to be that they ultimately ended up using that tobacco on Partagas Black. And they ended up putting it in a caldera to get it to that point. Now, here I am talking about calderas in a negative light, but for some consumers, they love it. Um, Traditionally, Altidus Onyx have been a cigar that that is a broadleaf wrapper that's been done in a caldera. And they love, they like the fact that A, it's super dark, but they also love the fact that it's super mild. So here you have a customer that wants really dark, but he also wants really mild. Well, the way you achieve that is by giving him a cigar with a wrapper that we finished in a caldera. And, that, and that's it, what satisfies consumers' needs. It also depends on the prime too, uh, which is a very good point too that you, you brought up. Because I mean, if I'm, if I'm using like a high prime uh, broadleaf, it can go to the caldera. Again, I, I like that, you know, you're talking about this. And I think, you know, the consumer should know too and get, get rid of all this, this bullshit that they hear about uh, how how 
how they get into a dark wrapper. You know, you see a lot of the bullshit of 10-year fermentation, 12-year tobacco. Again, uh, nothing wrong. Again, I, I, I'm, I'm with you, Steve. I think, you know, some, some clients, they want to see that kind of even dark wrapper. And sometimes, you know, some people like to go through this process of, of uh, you know, uh, there's no other expression, cooking the leaf in the caldera. Uh, but again, you, you're losing a lot of the flavors, losing a lot of the oils. Like the, the I think one of the things of, with the broadleaf, it's that, you know, usually even like a third, third prime, it's extremely thick. Yes. So it gives you that ability to, to uh, ferment a little longer or, or if you want to speed up the process, of course, you know, put in the caldera. Uh, but some leaves, you just cannot. Uh, I cannot get a third prime of a, of a corojo and, and, and get to, to naturally get to a, to a desirable color without losing basically everything. Right. So sometimes you're smoking a cigar, the combustion is perfect. Everything is fine because that leaf was cooked. So everything looks good. But actually, you get no flavor coming out of that wrapper at all. All the flavors are coming from the fillers and the binders, which is fine. I mean, I'm not criticizing who does it. So, Steve, I, so I have a question for you, and I'm going to tread very carefully here because I, I sincerely don't want to insult you. Yeah. Oh, the, the, the umbagogs traditionally have a – they're very dark. Is that right. just the, the specific tobacco that you've gone after? Or, again, I'm, no, again, I'm is, being careful here. That's oh, not be, cooked, right? No, it's not that. No, we, we don't currently use anything in the calderas. So everything we do is 100% natural. What you're looking at on umbagogs are, those typically tend to be the wrappers that are veinier. They're the ones that might have some white lines in them. We get some white veins. Also, we get some pinholes in broadleaf. It's very common. You know, a lot of times we can cut around them because the leaf is so wide. You have so much material to take from to get that tenderloin cut. But what we do is we don't, umbagogs aren't segundos of me, Rita, and Tricky Traca. What they are is they're a very similar blend. But when we're sorting the wrapper in Desparillo, we just take the leaves that are uglier and we put them for umbagog production and we take the ones that are prettier. But it's the exact same tobacco from the exact same harvests, from the exact same polones, all worked identically. We're just making an aesthetic judgment. Okay, we're going to use these on Umbagog, and we're going to use these on Mickey Reader. Okay. In my perfect world, there would be very few Umbagogs. I would love for everything to be attractive enough to put on Mickey Reader's because Mickey Reader's are a cigar that I sell day in, day out at a retail value of $12 to $15, where Umbagogs are a sub $10 cigar. But Umbagogs are necessary because unlike a lot of the other tobaccos I buy, you get so much waste in broadleaf. You get you lose so much coming out of the barn. You lose so much in fermentation. You just it's just it's just it costs so much more. A high quality cut of Connecticut broadleaf typically runs a factory. Like if you're talking about in the mediums and the number one darks, the top tier leaves off the plant, you're going to be spending over 80 cents for that cut. And you're probably right now is closer to about a dollar for that cut. Whereas like with a really high grade Ecuador Habano, that's just pristine. If you're doing your job right, you're paying somewhere between 32 cents and 36 cents for that cut. So even though that tobacco costs way more per pound when I buy it, it actually costs way less to use it compared to the broadleaf. 
the Broadleaf is by far the most expensive wrapper of the regularly available wrappers. Do I have some wrappers that cost more? Yeah, but they're because they're special side projects that you grew and there's just no way it makes economical sense. Like the wrapper we use on Syncompromiso, that's excessively expensive because of how we decide to grow it and harvest it. But out of just the normal tobaccos that we all buy and we all ferment, we all work with, Broadleaf tends to be the one that's the most expensive for the manufacturer. And what's really weird is 20 odd years ago, Broadleaf was kind of considered the product for the cheap cigar. Um, you know, consumers yeah. didn't want it. And it was, uh, Broadleaf is a leaf for cigarettes. Right. And honestly, Liga Pravada is the brand that kind of changed the way people thought about Broadleaf, that you could actually put Broadleaf on an ultra premium cigar and you could sell it at an ultra premium price and that there was a customer out there that was willing to pay for something with, I don't know what their current running costs are, but I know when I was there, we were averaging about 92 cents a cut is what, uh, what those cigars were called that wrappers costing three times more than anything else in the factory. Now you say that's crazy, but if the customer is willing to pay for it, then why is it crazy? as long as they're willing to foot the bill. If they're not willing to foot the bill, then yeah, it's totally insane. But if every wrapper you put one, that on, you sell out of, and you're selling those cigars wholesale for seven, $8 a piece, well, then it's worth spending an extra 60 cents to, to make those cigars that way. It's the same thing, Sin Compromiso, done without the Cultivo Tonto wrapper, instantly drops the price at the retail register at least $3 instantaneously, right off the bat. If you just use standard San Andres Negro that I bought from the Torrance or Carry On or Gaston Rodriguez or even the person that I buy tobacco from, um, you, would, you would save $3 at the retail register. Easy, maybe even four. But I choose to do something different. Then consumers get to choose whether it's worth the price for admission. Do they think it's worth it or they not think it's worth it? They think it's worth it? Great, I keep making it. They think it isn't worth it, then guess what? I stopped doing it. It's just that simple for me well to go along this theme of myth busting so luciano you, you may recall this discussion that we had uh, at dinner at pca where I, I made the comment about your the bichardo classico and one of the to, one of the tobaccos that you use in the filler is omentepe and my my compliment to you was i really i really enjoy that cigar as you know and i was but i was mostly i was really impressed with how nuanced and delicate that blend was flavor-wise, considering it had such a potent leaf of omentepe in it. And to which you kind of launched into this, this, uh, this discussion where you got really passionate about it. You're like, can we stop talking about omentepe being this, this, this hand, this hands-off leaf, this leaf that's kind of got this, uh, this, this negative, uh, this negative vibe towards it. And it was a really interesting Really interesting discussion. I thought we could bring it to tonight's conversation a little bit. Um, what um, what is it about Omentepe that that uh, the myth of Omentepe that exists out there that that you've kind of that you kind of debunked when you were having this conversation with us? No, I, I kind of share with you my my frustration of watching a couple of shows that week uh, doing the trade show and people talk about Omentepe and uh, it's it's so frustrating that again uh, you know some some myths and lies keeps going keeps perpetuating, you know, and I, I hate to see that. So Omitepe is probably one of the most unique tobaccos in Nicaragua, in my opinion. You know, the, the sulfur soil, uh, it is at the base of an active volcano. Uh, 
you have so much, uh, so much richness and, uh, and, you know, all the sulfur, the salinity of the tobacco, just, you know, in contrast with any, anything from the, the north side of the country, including Esteli, Condega, Pueblo, Jalapa, it makes you salivate. Is the contrast of the magnesium of the soil uh, of their area, which we know really well because we've been growing tobacco there for more than 10 years, then with Ometepe. So Ometepe is almost like a leaf that it's, uh, again, I, I might be, I might step into different boundaries here, but I, I think uh, it's important for people to know, and it's not a secret that Placencia holds uh, probably about 80% of the, all the Ometepe production today. So he controls 80% of that, that market. And I can assure you that probably in 80% of his lands, there is some leaf of Ometepe somehow. They just don't disclose it because they, they never disclose the, you know, their, their glands. Uh, but again, uh, Steve can, can, I don't know if he uses Ometepe or not. I, I, I believe they do. I use a couple leaf. blends, but for me, it's been more of a condiment style leaf than something that I've really built a lot into. And part of it is I don't currently, I don't currently buy a lot of tobacco from Nestor. So not buying a lot of tobacco from Nestor doesn't put me in good pull position, you know, to, to get something that I want on the regular of a certain grade or a certain quantity. And, and because I don't use a lot of his tobaccos, um, ultimately it doesn't put me in a good buying position with him. Um, it's almost like if I get something, it's because they're doing me a favor here, Steve, you need 30 cantales of this. Yeah. We can hook you up with 30 cantales of that. If that's what you need, you know, but yeah. I can't, I can't I also, do anything in serious volume with him until I really start incorporating a lot of his tobaccos into my blends because you can't just cherry. It's one thing to go and, Hey, I need three bales. I need four bales of something. Yeah. That's not a problem. But when you start getting to quantities where you need 30 bales of a particular thing, you can't buy 30 bales of a particular thing. You got to buy those 30 and those 20 and those 30. And yeah, and you got to figure out how to make it work across your line. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the challenges that you have being a factory owner is that you have to figure out how to use all the materials that you buy and have a wide variety of product lines. It's one of the advantages I have that I don't have to deal with that. Um, I can cherry pick. But I pay, I pay dearly to cherry pick. And then in turn, the customers pay for that cherry picking too, you know. And um, but there is also a certain point where you can't cherry pick anymore. And then you have to figure out, okay, what am I gonna do? And a lot of times, luckily for me, because I'm working with two large factory partners, there can be something that I want in particular. And there can be a way to utilize the rest of the crop in other products that they currently manufacture. And I can basically, we can either dollar cost average it into my production, or they can purchase the pounds for me for that. You know, it just depends. It's, but when it comes to like the Umbagog Mikerita conversation, I can never get my money out of broadleaf secondary. Once I cream the broadleaf and then I go to sell it, I'm just going to get such little money that it's just better to convert it into cigars that I think are worth smoking than it is to try to reconstitute my money out of the broadleaf. Other materials, yeah, I have no problem at all. 
you know, that if, hey, if I end up wanting this particular hue of this particular Ecuador Habano, it's not a big deal. Because what am I going through? I'm going through three Polones, four Polones a year at this point. You know what I mean? I'm not going through a bazillion of it. So, you know, I'm really good friends with the Levas from Oliva Tobacco Company. So it's okay for me to get, you know, to, to cherry pick four Polones every, every single year. But can't do that with other things. So the, I think just just kind of going back to the Ometepe. So we, so I particularly don't buy from from Nestor. Uh, we have a, a specific project that we have in in Ometepe where we we basically uh, finance some uh, some producers there. Uh, I use the Ometepe in several of our brand uh, our blends. I like to use that tobacco a lot. Now uh, I think. Uh, you know, Adele Fernandez, he uses a lot of Ometepe as well. He does the same system as I do, but also he does buy some from uh, from uh, from Placentia. Again, you, you're absolutely right. So you got to, you know, we have a very particular position where we, we grow we grow certain tobaccos that are in high demand right now. So we just give us some leverage to uh, to actually acquire what we want and trade tobacco as well. Uh but I, I mean, I, I just hate to see people talking about Ometepe as if, uh, you know, it's a bad thing. For some reason, I think someone, uh, I don't remember who, I don't want to even mention names of companies, uh, but someone kind of made a 100% Ometepe cigar and apparently it wasn't so good. And that's why, you know, this whole thing started. I don't think Ometepe, most, yeah. You think most consumers have a negative opinion of Ometepe? I don't. No, I, I think it's not the consumers. I think it's the, the more about the... <laughs> What about the this this podcast and, and shows? You know, maybe one or two guys who have a uh, misconception about it. And that's like everything. I mean, look, there are certain things that people look. That's the that's that's the inherent nature of everything, right? Like, for example, if someone asked me, I'm not a bad a big fan of Olor. I'm not. I've had a lot of cigars that are very heavy with a lot of Olor in it, and very rarely do I find that to be a pleasing cigar. So for me, Olor is a material that I just kind of overlook and dismiss. Now, obviously, you can make some really great blends with Olor, or a company like Davidoff wouldn't be in business because they use a boatload of Olor, right? So it's the same thing. Like I noticed, I think you have a blend um, that uses Arapiaca as the wrapper, correct, Luciano? Yes, we do. Right. I've never been a big fan of Arapiaca. I've worked it. I've tried it. I've made multiple blends with it. Um, and for me, I just never could get it to a place that it ever really worked for me. Separate of that, though, I've smoked cigars that have Arapiaca wrappers that have been worked by other people and made by other people that I really enjoyed. So there you go. They're able to do something yeah. that I wasn't able to do for whatever reason. You know, so I, I think we all have our own like inherent biases. And I think whether they're, and none of them are ever factual. That's the whole point of a bias, right? It's an opinion. <laughs> I think that, and I think that when it comes to the reviewers and the bloggers and the YouTubers and everybody, everybody comes to it with their own perception. I, I think what drives me more crazy is I, I, I hate the fact that so many consumers just are constantly just getting the sales pitch. And what I hate more than that you guys as bloggers, you just repeat the sales pitch all the time. 
even though the sales pitch is really just something that was made in a marketing room at a conference table by some people that have never, they couldn't, they couldn't sort wrapper from filler, much less do any of the things that are necessary. And you see these stories perpetuated, but I've been on the other side of that. Look, I worked for Lou Rothman. All we did was sell cigars and, the consumer demands that story. The consumer, regretfully, they sometimes just demand to be lied to. They do. You know, they, they, they need to have that package story, something to differentiate it. Everything we make is brown and round. It all looks the same. So everybody's always trying to come up with something to differentiate. And a lot of times, the only thing that does differentiate is that story. And, uh, and it's, look, it's a necessary evil because if that's what it takes to get a consumer to try a cigar to decide whether they like it or they don't like it. I mean, there's, there are so few people that you tell them that these are the ingredients in the cigar for them to actually be able to tear the cigar apart and even tell what those ingredients are is so rare. And I'm going to say that this is even rare for me to do. I don't know about Luciano. But these materials have gotten so close over the years. It used to be much simpler, but we grow so many seed varieties, so many hybrids, so many places that, you know, for me to pick out the difference between a C98 and a C99, I'm really just kind of getting lucky when it's a finished ingredient in a cigar that's been cured, been fermented, put in a bunch uh, I, I just, I, I don't have the capacity to always do that, but I mean, but you get these consumers go, oh yeah, I really detect that C98. Boy, that C98 really stands out. You know what I mean? No, they're just buying into the story because they need to have something to connect with that makes it different than another cigar. Well, the reason I made that comment, uh, in the discussion at that dinner with Luciano about Omentepe, because uh, my, my experience, my initial, my initial experience with Omentepe tobacco was a cigar that was made with, it was the punch undercut, uh, uppercut, excuse me. Uh, that was, was heavily used, uh, heavily using uh, of Omentepe tobacco. And I actually, at the time I liked it. It was a very, it was a very potent, powerful cigar. And that was its intent. And that was, to what we were talking about just a second ago, Steve, that's the story, right? That was the story that was packaged and put together with it. And so that was my impression of Omentepe tobacco is that it's this very aggressive forthright to tobacco leaf. I didn't necessarily have a negative connotation with it, but right. I was, but again, to my point about Luciano cigar, uh, the, the classico, uh, was that that cigar contained that tobacco and i was still just so impressed with how nuanced and how yeah, it was it o was ometepe has ometepe has no i mean ometepe has it's so hard to find a lihero of ometepe because all the leaves are very thin mm. that's, that's, that's the okay. first thing so you have we have less biomass in ometepe so ometepe actually you get way more seco and volado and, and viso than than anything else. I mean, more more sacred volado than than Viso and Hero, because a very uh, it's a very thin uh, thin leaf. Uh, something with the soil, maybe the seed that's grown there. Uh, but Ometepe doesn't have a lot of nicotine. It's not uh, actually a potent uh, tobacco at all. It has very lower uh, amount of nicotine compared to uh, Condega, Steli. Even it's actually milder than Jalapa. 
I remember when I was in We read all these articles about how this super uber strong Peruvian tobacco. Peruvian tobacco is not a strong tobacco. It's not strong. It's thin. Yeah. It's always been a filler kind of ingredient. But nobody in the American market ever heard of Peruvian. The manufacturer tells us this is the reason why it's so super strong. So then we end up writing catalogs and talking about brands, about how this amazing, super high octane Peruvian tobacco is. And that goes out to 200,000 consumers and they read the story and then it becomes fact. And it's 10 years into the future when I finally start to actually look at Peruvian tobacco and play with Peruvian tobacco. I'm like, this shit isn't strong. What's going on here? You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I've always been told how strong this is. And when you're actually using it and you're making little tobacchiatos and you're smoking those individual leaves, you're like, this isn't strong at all. What's, you know, what's it's, it's, it's because it's, it's because the Peruvian has high acidity. So in the hetero hill, it feels like, you know, it, it's burning a little bit. So you yeah. have the highest city, no. the, but, there's, but there's no strength at all. Right. It's just, it's just that, that it has that sharpness to it, but it's yeah. very hollow. It's very thin. It doesn't have much depth to it. It doesn't have a lot of richness to it. And that's the other thing that makes our, our lives so hard is I've given up trying to explain what strong is anymore to consumers everybody's interpretation of strong is so different than the other person's interpretation of strong. Sometimes it's based on nicotine. Well, how you individually deal with nicotine depends on how much nicotine you, you ingest on a regular basis. You're a guy that's smoking 10 cigars a day takes a pretty heavy IV drip for me to feel the nicotine wallop of a cigar. You get another guy that smokes, you know, two cigars a week and he normally smokes some, uh, you know, milder style Dominican type blends. Well, then, yeah, something like uh, Hoya de Nicaragua Antonio is just going to kick that guy in the ass, much less something like a DL 700 from La Florida Minicana. You know what I mean? Whereas I can make a blend like Tricky Troc and I can consider it a very strong blend. But for most bloggers, I think most bloggers wouldn't consider that a strong, strong blend because they're used to getting these uber pepper bombs that really set them afire. Um, You know, I I don't currently make any uber pepper bombs. I mean, eventually you think I will. But problem with making uber pepper bombs is you almost really kind of have to under ferment the tobacco to get it to give you that kind of uber pepper sharpness. You know what I mean? It's uh, and you also you kind of have to use it quickly. Um, because you don't want it to be hanging around too long in a bale because uh, you don't want to lose that. And that's where it works out really well when you're a factory like Papin Garcia that you focus on making these stronger, spicy, racy, lean, more biting style cigars. Well, they have a lot of tobacco that's being fermented the way that's necessary to achieve that. And they're chewing through it after fermentation quick enough that it isn't sitting around for a very, very long time. And, and that helps him make a much more peppery natured cigar. And that's why you find that factories have certain styles and certain genres of what they make because the tobaccos kind of dictate what direction you go. Yeah. I think when I was, uh, uh, when I was more doing a lot of retail, I, that's, that was kind of, you know, in the theme of myth busting that we're talking about, you know, I broke it down that there's, there's three types of things that you're looking for in the cigar. There's, there's flavor, there's strength and um, there's body. And all of those things 
you know, kind of get boiled down into this this thing that you were talking about, Steve, that like people think is a a strong what a stronger cigar is. You know, a cigar can be you know pretty heavily bodied, but you know, de- with the, depending on the tobaccos that are used, the strength may not be you know at peak levels. You know, it might not be that high octane smoke. It's just it's just heavy. It's just heavy what, because of the tobacco. What I would say to you, Bear, as much as the pepper bombs get a lot of like social media love they do not get retail love for the most part about one of the one universal truth is even when people like even the people that like strong heavy full flavored cigars they do tend to prefer them to be smooth smoothness is something that is never a sin in a cigar regardless of its strength level and uh the like i said the pepper bombs get all the, they get a lot of accolades and they get a lot of online love but they don't tend to get a lot of actual long-term sales. They tend to fail pretty quick. I guess I asked a question to a friend of mine who is a scientist and he explained to me the effect of nicotine in our body versus uh, the effect of ammonia. So if you, I always like to explain to the consumer, like if they get like stomach sick, you know, like, uh, you know, when you feel nausea, smoking a cigar, that's not nicotine, that's ammonia. And usually comes when you smoke a very harsh, very kind of, you know, spicy bomb, like, like Steve said. Now, when you smoke a well-fermented tobacco, there's less ammonia, so there's more delivered, uh, so the nicotine is better delivered to your body, to your system. So when you feel the goosebumps, the temperature of your body lowers, uh, you feel chills, or you feel relaxation at the same time focus, uh, you know, sometimes you can have a lot of headache of, you know, too much nicotine. Those are symptoms of, uh, of a, you know, a cigar that's stronger nicotine. Now, uh, I see a lot of people complaining they smoke a cigar, they feel sick. You know, the stomach sick is actually not coming from the nicotine. It's coming from the excessive, the excessive ammonia. Um, and that's, that's another, uh, Buster, I guess. I think one of the things, though, when you really think about it, though, I mean, look, we're to the point now with where materials and labor and everything costs that it's really hard to make a top tier cigar that can retail for less than 12 bucks. 12 bucks has kind of become the bottom line. I mean, can you do a little better? Yeah, maybe you can do a little better, but really. We're pretty much to the point where it's. No, I'm not saying you can't make a perfectly good cigar that people will enjoy that cost eight dollars on a retail shelf, but if you are actually really talking about the best materials, the best practices, we're pretty much at twelve dollars is kind of the bottom, and that's where we're at. And we're really closer to fifteen is kind of the mid tier point. I know it sucks as consumers that the prices have gotten to where they are, but if you really start to think about it it's really kind of on pace with where inflation is overall. When you look at what a gallon of milk used to cost three decades ago, when you look at what a loaf of bread used to cost three decades ago, top tier is still running about two and a half times more. And, and that's, and that's about the same difference. It really, there's, I think one of the things that I'm struggling with, and I, I can't speak for anyone else, but I, I, I'm dealing with just total runaway inflation right now. I'm, I'm really, really struggling at the factory level. I mean, I'm, I'm, paying, I'm paying for Tripa 
prices that I never ever would have dreamed I would pay this quickly. I knew I was always going to get to this dollar amount, but I didn't think I was going to get to this dollar amount in an 18 month jump the way I have. Um, and I certainly, the shipping is really crushing me and the packaging materials have been just an utter nightmare. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I think that, I think most people think that we like to raise prices, but we don't, I think as manufacturers, what we really would love is if we never ever had to raise the price and the margin always stayed the same and we could just keep doing what we're doing. The problem is that every day things keep getting more expensive and eventually get to the point where you've got your margins so thin on it, you just really can't afford to make it anymore. And now you're kind of caught where, okay, I either have to make it a lower grade to keep the price point, or if I want to make it the same grade, then I have to raise the price. I have no choice. And the problem is being at the bottom end on the factory end, that price then gets magnified as it goes through the import and the distribution and the retail channel. So something where that nickel 10 cents makes a real difference to the guy on the factory level, regretfully often, once we get to the end of the rainbow, me taking an extra seven cents can in some states equal an extra 50 to 70 cents once you get to the taxes on top of it. So it's like, it seems like a huge price increase for the consumer, but us on the bottom, we really, we really need those crummy seven pennies. We can't, we can't not have them. And right now inflation's so crazy. I don't even know what to do with it right now. I mean, it's like, are we, we going to have price increases every uh, 120 days? Is that, is that the market that we're in now? I don't know. Are, are you running into these problems, Luciano? Because I, I, I am. Oh, yeah. I'm beating my head against the wall on them right now. It's especially in, in binders and, and wrappers, you know. I mean, we, we, we grow wrappers in Ecuador. Uh, and our production used, used to be uh, enough to cover, you know, all we, all we manufacture. But, you know, for two years, we're having to kind of complement that and buy the wrappers. And it's crazy. Like, you know, you jumped from, I don't know, $14 a, a pound to 26, 27 on the, on the, yeah, you if you're going to buy a Ecuadorian bottle from someone like a yeah. tobacco company, you're, you're pretty much 26 at the low end for the nice exactly. stuff. And you're actually pushing up over 30 for the really, really tippy tip top tier stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's just like, you know, prices are skyrocketing, you know, uh, it's good in one side, you know, like, you know, with our tobacco that we grow in Jalapa and what we grow in Pueblo, uh, you know, has a very good market for, but again, Steve is right. I mean, the prices are crazy. And I, well, my and I as far as I remember. My commission checks, I do the same thing as you, I think, to a degree. I have a few farmers that I basically fund their crops, right? Uh -huh. And my commission investment checks, I call it commission check. Um, and uh, they're double of what they were just a year ago. I had to put twice as much money on the street to accomplish the same task as I've had in previous years. And this is so directly related to energy costs because everything about tobacco has to do with energy. It has to do with diesel, it has to do with fertilizer, and it has to do with manpower. Everything is energy when it comes to growing tobacco at every level, whether it be you know, powered or whether it be human powered. And uh, man, it's, it, it's insane right now. And I just, 
I keep and packaging and wood. I mean, uh, everything is crazy. If you can find it, actually. Yeah, wood, now, woods, woods. That's another issue too. I can't even. We're we're struggling now in in Nicaragua to even get okame. Just give up uh, wood. Wood is done. We we haven't been looking at wood for a long time. Yeah, there's a few box makers that source some illegal wood, this and that, but it's not enough to make quantity. So pretty much everybody's been kind of pushed into Okame, which the Dominican had already kind of done ahead of us. We've been kind of holding out. But even now, Okame is becoming a problem that we can't even get that. And I now I now have box makers pitching me on particle board because particle board is the only thing that they can get any sort of consistent supply around. You know, but the problem with particle board is that you have to uh you have to either completely paper the box with labels to completely hide the particle board, which is incredibly expensive, or you have to paint the boxes. And not everybody in Nika has really good paint shops to be able to do that kind of work. Uh, I mean, I think they're now starting, more people are adding them, but Cesar over at Cigar Box is like the only one that's really good at painting. But he's to the point now that he wants... He wants six to seven months box orders in advance in order for you to have a chance at getting them where he was always a pain in the ass. He always needed 90 to 120 days, but now he wants 180 to 210 days advance notice. And it's, it's tough, man. It's, it's gotten really crazy. And I have the luxury of not only waiting two to three times longer, I also have the luxury of paying $2 more a box too. And he's already told me expect that price to go up. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about these frustrations that you're dealing with on the logistical side, just to bring it back to the, the cigar production side. Um, you know, Steve, you, you, the, the, your history with making cigars is like you were, like you've recounted on this show and, and many shows in the past and everything. You're, you're very picky. Uh, you, you, you need to, you, you need, you. I was less picky when I was at Drew Estate. We made cigars of a wide variety of, quantity and quality so we had some we were really picky on and we had others we were less picky on so just depends on the circumstances right so to that point i wanted to ask both of you this question what project has given you the biggest headache from top to bottom from sourcing the tobacco to you know finding the blend within the tobaccos that you used to ultimately getting that product on the shelf. I think I know what it is for you, Steve, but I don't want to play the assumption game here, but I'm interested to hear your answers on this. What cigar has, cost you, has caused you guys the most internal struggle, the most problems? Then well, ultimately it was worth it because you, you, know, you, you, know, you obviously put a, a great product on the shelf in y'all's opinion. So. On my, my side, um, probably the, the Le Patissier that we just launched, our crown heads. Le Patissier was a nightmare. And uh, I'm glad it's a limited series because I'll never repeat that same mistake. It's an amazing cigar. The result is fantastic, but I'm using a, a Connecticut broadleaf in a very uh, small bitola. I'm using Connecticut broadleaf in a 44. So it's, uh, it's, just, uh, it's just a nightmare, you know, just to, to, uh, to be able to work with, the, with, with you know, the humidity and the uh, the right humidity to to achieve the construction and make sure we sort out the, the right the right primes for that pitola because otherwise you get a lot of burning issues and we've been aging for a long time and it seems like you know it never ended 
until we're able to uh, you know sort it out the the quantity enough to uh, to make that cigar. So that was a something that we we wanted to do, but at the same time, uh, it was a uh, you know it was just really hard to kind of get to the that final uh, that final product. I'm glad we did, but again, probably it's a project that we're not making any money. Was it the, did you start off with the idea that it was going to be a 44 or did it just eventually become the 44 and that's what made it difficult? Yeah, here's, here's the worst thing. You know, it was my fucking idea. So I, 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 I got to blame myself for it. I actually, I convinced uh, John to, uh, to go with it because I, I just love the cigar, but I had no idea that, you know, it would be so much work, especially now with the rain season in Nicaragua, it's been really hard. But again, you know, we, we went through, we achieved, everything's produced, uh, you know, it's ready to hit the shelves. You're proud of the product, but again, you know, it took us way longer than we thought. So the, prob- the problem with the rainy season in Nika at this point is it becomes a packaging issue. The cigars, mm-hmm. when we pull them out of the cool rooms, they're so hydroscopic. They suck up so much moisture that it's really difficult to get the cigars wicked down. In fact, the two worst months for packing and shipping cigars out of Nicaragua are historically September and October. They're, 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 they're the most difficult months to do packaging um, because of all of the excess moisture in the air. And the thicker the cigars are, as you would have with a broadleaf cigar, the more it tends to overhumidify itself very, very quickly. I mean, just the act of you pulling it out of the cool room, doing the final quality, doing the final color store, getting it banded, getting it into the boxes. Oddly enough for me, so I have a lot of projects that are like small, little, unique kind of crop things. Um, And you would think those would be the ones that are the most challenging, but actually they're not. Those are kind of more fun. The one that's actually giving me the most grief right now is Sober Mesa Brulee. Sober Mesa Brulee has turned out to be a problem project for me. And it's because of the success of it. It's just doing so, so well that the amount of material I need to buy to make that cigar consistent is now got me buying a lot of material that I don't quite know what I'm going to ultimately do with it. So that's number one problem. I'm having to buy a lot of tobaccos that I normally wouldn't buy to get the tobacco that I want to continue growing the brand. And the second problem is the fact that it comes in a, in a dressed box, which requires edging strips and seals and vistas, and they have to be printed in Europe. And I'm just struggling to get the packaging material. I'm struggling for them to get the right ink. I'm struggling for them to get the right powder. I'm struggling for them to get the right paper grade that I need in order to make it work right. So the fact of how that project is scaling is proving to be my biggest challenge because for the moment that we launched Brulee, we've never ever satisfied demand. So three years ago, when we first launched it, it did really well out of the gate and it's just perpetually continued to always do better. And which is a great thing, right? It's what you all dream to have as a brand that grows like that. Um, but we are at the phase now that we're making so many sober Mesa brulees. It's becoming it's becoming a it's becoming a much bigger challenge 
to get all the parts and pieces that I need to make it consistently. In fact, one of the tobaccos is shared between Brulee and Todos Las Dias. And I'm actually going to put Todos Las Dias on hiatus because I really need the tobacco to go into Brulee. And Todos Las Dias for me, it's my slowest growing brand. It grew, grew like about 17% last year. So for me, it's just a simple business decision. I can't make Todos Las Dias without making less brulee. So therefore, Todos Las Dias is going to have to go a little bit on hold for a little while. But brulee, because of the size and scale of it, currently is my biggest challenge. Interesting. So that, like I said, I thought I had something in mind, but you, you, you uh, surprised me again, Steve. I thought, I thought you were going to say Sin Compromiso because of how long oh, look, it took I mean, to Look, the wrapper crop, but that was a, look, there was a pilot crop and then there was a test crop. And then there was a real crop. It was a process that, you know, started five years earlier. And look, I, I have a project now that I've been working on for a while. You know, a lot of people are growing broadleaf in Nicaragua right now. Everybody's trying to grow broadleaf. They're all trying to figure out how to do it. Most of what I have been involved in the growing of, most of it's been sold to the mass market companies at this point. I only have one thing that, I think has some sort of interest to it, a hybridized, um, which is actually a cross between a Nicaraguan seed and a broadleaf seed that I'm seeing success with that I'm really interested in. And, uh, but yeah, so those are expensive projects, but they're small, they're manageable, they're controllable. You're like, okay, I'm going to spend, I'm going to spend 15,000 to do this. I'm going to spend 20 K to do that. I'm going to spend this to do that. It's, it's when it starts to get into really big numbers that it then starts to get a little dicey and scary as a small guy, which oddly enough is where you're trying to get to anyways, right? You're trying to get to the point where you have a brand that you actually can sell a million cigars of that one blend every year. That's a, that, 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 that's a dream come true as a small manufacturer to have a blend that's that well accepted. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate this is uh, this is just the, exactly kind of the discussion that I wanted to have tonight. So I appreciate you all uh, uh, humoring me and, and diving in deep with me on some of this stuff and everything. But uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break and have a couple of fun segments. Um, and uh, and this was uh, this one's already kind of been answered by Steve. So hey, can answers- I ask a question? Sure. When you were doing the, the shorts for John on the Broadleaf, were you just using the second cuts or were you trying to cut individual strips out of the leaf to make the smaller ones? So were you making so, large Maduros and then you were just using those, that outer, sometimes a third cut because it's so broad or were you taking all of those from the leaf to make the four by 44s or whatever size they were? So the, 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 the main challenge actually was the prime because, you know, we have to select all the, the you know, the thinnest broad leaves for that, for that Vitola. But uh, usually with the broadleaf, we take two stripes. Right. Uh, you know, the, the you know, little far from the from the from the main vent, so from the from the stem. So we 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 use you know a little uppercut and then another another stripe. So we you know sometimes you can get three out of it, but uh, usually two. But you were trying to make all the small cigars out of the big tobacco is what you were trying to do rather than, Hey, yeah, I mean, actually, actually that I'm making big. And then I have, so like, so like I have Gorditas and Mickey reader, right? Mm-hmm. All Gorditas are four by 48s. Those are, those get made 
from that outer edge cut that's left over from the tenderloin cut that I'm going to make a Toro or a double Corona out of. So every time I make a Corona or a double Corona, I always have enough wrapper left to then make a small format. Yeah, my, my, my problem is that we don't have a regular line of broadleaf. So we don't have anything in our regular lines that uses broadleaf. So I have to. And then it of, makes it a very inefficient yeah. use of the material because here's the problem. The consumer is unwilling to pay what it costs for the small format, even though it costs almost identical to make the small one as it does to make the large one. You have this, you have this problem where now you're making a bunch of cigars that they're small and they need to be 12 and $14 cigars and consumers want them to cost seven or eight because they only last for 35, 40 minutes if they're lucky. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In, in our case, like uh, we try to select the primes. So we, we bought we bought a whole container, right? So we, we had to kind of use that broadleaf and, and purpose it for, for different things. Uh, some of that broadleaf goes actually into uh, goes into fillers, you know? I mean, whatever right. is stripa that comes in a container goes into fillers. Uh, but what we primed for that specific project, which was, I, if I'm not wrong, I think it was about 70,000 cigars, I think. Uh, that that was uh you have to kind of really select the thinner leaves and of course the more close to the you know if i get volado if i get sickle the, the more the more close to the bottom the, the larger the leaves are so we got you know this enlarged leaves and we try to you know take at least two uh two wrappers uh from each each band each side right um and my problem was not actually the the much of the price uh was more about construction because you said really uh, exactly our issue right now. So we're packing the cigars right now in September, October. And, uh, and we use a draw master to every single one of our cigars. So we don't, we don't, we don't do draw master by weight. We, we just basically, you know, pass every single one of them into the draw master. And sometimes we get like 20%, 25% rejection in one day for my best bunch, of, you know, because of humidity. So that, that was that was the challenge. We start losing a lot of tobacco, but then you have to kind of, you know, uh, save the bunch, wait until it dries, and then rewrap it again. And so it's, it was a it was a little, little nightmare. But I'm I'm glad we uh, we overcame that. Interesting. So wanted to uh, dive in here to our again to our more fun segments tonight so we've always kind of break up the show with our one must go segment steve's already kind of answered this question like i said but uh, i thought we could still have fun with it anyway so this uh, is our one must go segment which is of course is brought to you by united cigars featuring la Giana havana distributors of jose dominguez bandolero garofalo and the highly acclaimed atabay and byron lines so smoke one today and start living united so back to the subject of birthdays um and uh like i said steve's already kind of answered this so so one of these one of these types of birthdays has to go and so steve you're not allowed to pick all of them so you got to pick one so (laughs) so uh (laughs) celebrating your birthday as a we uh, we do agree on something birthdays uh, as kids is is kind of in its own its own realm but celebrating birthdays as a teenager so, you know, anything from 13 to 19 years old as a young adult from 20 to 30 or celebrating a birthday now, one of these age times has to go to the curve 
and which one is it and why and i know steve wants to pick all of them but but just curious which which age range of celebrating birthdays would you uh would you get rid of i think i'd go with the middle adults first Again, look, when you get to my age and you get a 50, when you hit 50, that's a milestone. When you hit 55, 68, you look, you're, you're on the downside, right? You've lived less years. You have less years to live than what you've lived. It's just a fact, you know? So I think if I had to, if I had to like get rid of one, it'd be the people that are kind of like, they're no longer kids. They're young adults. I mean, really just get on with your life. Yeah, I, 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 I actually will, will go with Steve here. I agree. I think, of course, you know, I, uh, everybody has, has its own history. So I, my, my, uh, when I was celebrating birthdays when I was a kid, wasn't that pleasant. But uh, I would say that uh, probably I'll get rid of the, that middle age as well. And the other reason why you want the older age, because look, I don't have the benefit of grandchildren. Well, I now do instantly, courtesy of uh, who John married. But also, you start to do those more for them than for yourself because they want to throw you the birthday party. They want to <laughs> sing you happy birthday over WhatsApp. They want to, you know what I mean? So it isn't that you want it, but you want to give them the ability to do it. So that's also part of, hey, when you're, you're 57 and some eight-year-old wants to make you a birthday card with cringe. You, you can't help but smile about that. <laughs> so again, it's all back to, it's all back to kids then, Steve. I, yeah, I think it's all back to kids. I, I look at these things. Look, I think of all of these things is it's for the kids, right? Other than, other than anniversaries. I, I think the one thing is I get older um, about birth and I, and I, and I do, at least in principle, Steve, agree with you. Like I, I don't celebrate birthdays like I used to, because again, you know, like I said, it's, I'm 38, like well, big whoop, you know, <laughs> I made it through. It's like another day. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's like another day, another trip around the sun. And um, it's just, it's, it's one of those things that just becomes less important. But what, you know, as, as my kids get older and as they start to do things for me, I think that's, what's going to make them more special again. And uh and, and, and maybe not like the festivities, like a, a full-blown blowout of a party or anything like that, but just seeing okay, a bouncy house for bear. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was in a, I was in a bounce house the other day, chasing my, chasing my two-year-old, my now two-year-old around. So uh, yeah, I, I think it's going to come to that point that, you know, they're going to want a bouncy house for, for, for dad's birthday every year or so. But um but I think that, yeah, I think you have a great point, though, that the 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 young adult years, the 20 to 30, they be, they they really kind of they they kind of just lose their luster a little bit. When you're a teenager, you're still growing up. They're still special. You know, they're right. you're still kind of ca you're trying to capture the the joys that you had as a, as a kid it is when you're when you're when you're 15, you can't wait to be 16. When you're 16, you can't wait to be 17. You just you can't wait when you get to be my age. I'm kind of like, you know what? It's OK if I'm not 60. I don't have any control over it, but I'm certainly not looking forward to it in any way. You know, the fact that I'm going to turn 60, there's no, there's no appeal to that. It's just, uh, yeah. And the other thing too, is I always think about birthdays is there's what 7.8 billion people on the planet. Do I have that number right? I think it's like around 7.8 billion. 
So that means that one out of every 365 of them are also just as equally as unique as you are on that day. So I mean, you're literally yeah, and mm-hmm. millions of people that have that as their special day in the world. So how, how special can it be? <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I, I loved you. I loved your bit about uh, just just the uh, just the just another day and everything because it reminded me of a, a comedy sketch by a comedian who talked about uh, Patton Oswalt. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all. But, uh, he's gotten in hot water a lot. Of, he's very polarizing just because he has some pretty pretty extreme political takes. Right. Uh, but he has this he has this great he has this great bit on birthdays and he's talking about how he's like yeah when you get to 21 that's your last birthday and then after that he's like you can celebrate a birthday every 10 years you know when you're 30 birthday 40 birthday 50 birthday until he's like until you get to 90 because once you hit 90 then like every year you can legally commit a crime that you can get away with (laughs) and basically he builds to with he's like if you can make it to 120 years old you are instantly the president of the united states and and he just goes on it's 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 a hilarious it's a hilarious bit it's 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 funny because when he, he kind of he kind of in in this way kind of encapsulates age uh really strangely about how you know the way we perceive the world as we get older and um you know how things become just you know so much more you know they become so much more microscopic in a lot of ways you know you know things become different we, we focus on different things as we get older and and uh you know to your point steve about you know hey like me turning 38 it's it's not about me anymore i've got a family i've got kids and and you know it you you lose that you lose that little bit of yourself because you're you you have other responsibilities and you have this whole other focus in life you know business family you know, all these other things. And so it, it just, uh, it's interesting as our, as we get older, how our, our how our priorities kind of change, even in the self-absorbed society that we lived in quite, that we live in quite a bit. It's, uh, it, it, it's an, it's an interesting observation. So, but, okay. That, when you first said that at the top of the show, I was like, well, this is going to make one must go a lot of uh, pretty interesting. Uh, Steve's going to want to kick all of them to the curb. So, um, but I, I appreciate nonetheless, gentlemen. Uh, that was, of course, our One Must Go segment uh, brought to you by United Cigars featuring La Giana Havana and distributors of Jose, Jose Dominguez, Bandolero, Garofalo, and the highly acclaimed Atabay and Byron lines. So when do we pick which one of those we want to have go away? Which ones? Which one of what? The sponsor cigars. If we had to pick one of those three. No, don't do that. Wow. <laughs> Steve's just trying to get me an hot water all over the place. Yeah, but that, that that that's the question I want to ponder. Which of those would I rather there not be? So <laughs> moving on. <laughs> okay. This, this is uh this is actually the this is speaking of birthdays, Steve's uh favorite subject. This is the one year anniversary of something that I started on this show. Last year I had a birthday episode. I had uh Miguel Shodell, John Carney of LFD, and Will Cooper on. And I launched a segment that's been going on for a year now where I've brought on guests each week and, and uh, we've, uh, we've featured a, uh, a nonprofit or charity of their choosing. And um, 
today we are celebrating the one year anniversary of that. So we're going to be featuring two charities tonight. One I, I picked and one that I've, I've spotlighted a number of times. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit briefly in a second. And, uh, and Luciano has uh, brought another one to the table. So to, to talk about, I think there are two great causes. Uh, and mine, of course, is Canines for Warriors, an amazing organization that uh, partners uh, uh, returning veterans uh, from, uh, from active duty uh, with, with canines. Uh, and it, it's a really great organization that uh, has proven statistically to help uh, strengthen uh, the lives of veterans, improve their health, their well-being, and, of course, uh, gets uh, homeless dogs off the street. So it, for me, it's a, it's a double hit. My, my father, as you guys, as you both know, my father is a veteran and, um, and is, uh, is currently in, in very poor health. And, uh, and I also have a soft spot in my heart for, uh, for animals. Um, my wife being a zookeeper and my, my own menagerie here at this house, uh, including some dogs. So, <laughs> uh, so Canines for Warriors is a, is a great organization that I've, I've talked about quite a bit and I think they do incredible work. Uh, so I'll be posting their information in the chat and in the show notes later. So please feel free to take a look at them and consider donating as well. Um, but Luciano, you uh, brought a, uh, great charity uh, to the forefront tonight, uh, something I was really excited to talk about, something that you've partnered with through the Ace Prime Foundation, the, uh, the charity that you started uh, in 2020, um, but that is Exodus Road, uh, which is a, an incredible organization that uh, deals in their enormous task of reducing and getting rid of human trafficking. Uh, which is, of course, a, an incredible scourge that uh, haunts our entire our entire world. But uh, why don't you talk a little bit about this organization and why you chose to spotlight tonight? Well, uh, man, I think uh, I don't know if, uh, if Steve uh, experienced that or one of the the manufacturers that makes uh, the cigars. That um, was basically. Uh, uh, syndicate a mob of people trying to uh, lure uh, bunchers and rollers from our factories to actually uh, cross the borders up to the United States. So it's a uh, it's a very serious thing, you know. We uh, I know many manufacturers lost a lot of uh, a lot of people to that. But what people don't know is that most of these uh, coyotes that actually uh, uh, lure people into uh, into uh, crossing the borders, uh, they uh, they rape the woman, they uh, they steal their kids. Uh, it's very serious. And my wife works. Uh, she doesn't tell me everything because she has clearance and she can tell me all the stuff because she works. Uh, Hand to hand with law enforcement uh, into the prevention of human trafficking, um, but uh, it's really sad to know that 30% of the women that try to cross the border they get raped or they, they get killed. So, and a lot of uh, Nicaraguans are, are 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 you know living for that dream that they will cross the border uh, to the United States illegally. And that they will, uh, and they'll they'll be able to, and they'll they are promised to have uh, paperwork. They are promised to have jobs, and you know, 
it's a it's a it's a nightmare. Uh, so, I mean, but the Exodus World they do an amazing job, not only within more than six countries uh, today, not only partnering with the law enforcement, training them uh, to identify, you know, this these crimes and try to solve them, but they also work with rescuing uh, people from uh, from the situations. So those guys have this amazing uh, intelligence, uh, private intelligence intelligence uh, network that uh, help law enforcement in different countries hand-to-hand -hand with the U.S. State Department and some other law enforcement uh, you know, in the U.S. as well to prevent that to happen and to dismantle those syndicates. So that's kind of what the Exodus Road, uh, Ex Exodus Road does, and it's an amazing thing. It's, uh, it's one of those charities that, like, it's really hard to talk about uh, because, again, it's not like, uh, you know, uh, you know, nice little dogs that you're petting and, and you know, the, the nice cool stories, which is also very important, but uh, it is, it's the other side of our humanity, you know, and unfortunately that happens everywhere. And these guys are willing to, to fight. They're willing to uh, step up and, and help that, that prevent that from happening. Just this year along, they saved a thousand lives, rescuing lives and thousands of lives just by, uh, you know, training law enforcement in some very kind of, uh, developing countries that needs uh, equipment. So they donate a lot of intelligence equipment and stuff to, to really, uh, uh, you know, uh, support them so they can actually, uh, they can actually fight human trafficking all over the world. Uh, so it's a very serious organization. Again, they are uh, vetted and, and they work hand to hand with the US State Department as well. Uh, those guys have done an amazing job. They're one of the main supporters of uh, our foundation as well. So they are helping us quite a bit. Uh, so I definitely want to highlight what they do. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, uh, exposing these things is really important. So, you know, again, it's all about the truth. It's all about the reality that we live today. And, and the reality is, uh, you know, this, this world is still a very ugly world. And we can all support by, uh, by, donating to organizations like the Exodus Road that is it's fighting and, and stepping up their game to uh, to save lives. So how did you, uh, I've heard a lot of great things about this organization and what uh, the, the horrific battles that they fight every day, Luciano, but uh, um, how did you, did, did you first come in contact with them because of, uh, it was introduced by your wife or was it, you know, was it uh, something else, was it uh, during your personal, your personal encounters like you were talking about with what was happening with some of the Buncheros and Roleros? Luciano? Uh, Peter is running out of batteries. All right, so it looks like we lost Luciano for a little bit. I know that he was uh, running off of a battery pack. I think he's going to be moving inside now. But yeah, what a what a great organization uh, that uh, the Exodus Road is fighting human trafficking all over this world. I really encourage you guys to go to their site. Uh, some really, I mean, really horrific, very graphic stories that you get to hear, but they are stories worth worth listening to. And I really encourage anyone to uh, to. To consider uh, to consider visiting the exodusroad.org. I posted the uh, the link in the chat there. I'll be posting it later in the show notes, and uh, and uh, consider giving to such a great organization and everything. So uh, I want to thank Luciano for 
for spotlighting um, spotlighting the cause and uh, and talking a little bit about it tonight. Um, so as he moves inside, um, Steve wanted to kind of talk about a few other items here before we uh, before we called it a night. Uh, and really, I can't really thank you enough for, especially after the long couple of weeks you've had, um, and how long it's uh, you know, like you said, the the road warrior aspect of of life that you go through, Stephen. Just the amount of time that you've always given me, I, I really appreciate it. And uh, you know, even uh, even though you don't uh, don't think uh, 38 is worth celebrating, I appreciate you celebrating it with me anyway. So thank you. <laughs> uh, it's been a it's been an absolute blessing. Um, but I want I want to talk about to go back a couple of months to uh, to PCA and um, um, and uh, I'll, I'll bring Luciano back into the discussion to talk about his trade show as well. But uh, from my aspect, and I'm not just saying this because you happen to be on, um, but from my eye and perspective, I thought the Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust and the Crown Heads Ace Prime Collective had two of the most successful trade shows. Uh, this year, um, just um, just overall, you know, as far as what we saw, what we observed at the booth, the the products that were announced, and and uh, what you guys have done uh, before and obviously since then, you know, COVID notwithstanding, huge challenges if we as we've been talking about a lot tonight and everything, you know, this in 2020 uh, one isn't exactly. Um, an anomaly for you, Steve, as far as having successful trade shows, you've had six in my mind, you've had successful trade shows every year that there's been one. Talk about it for a second. Um, the challenge of parlaying the success of a trade show into a continued momentum and success for the rest of the year. Like you've, you, at least from where I sit, you've never been a man who sat on his laurels. Obviously your company wouldn't be where it is today if you did, but what, what kind of you were talking about we talked at the top at the top of the show about the, the hard work that people don't realize the hard work that goes into it talk about the hard work that you have to parlay a successful trade show into actually delivering on that successful trade show and what that looks like for you know as you close out a year and then obviously gear up you know the next six months for the next trade show um i think that well, it's a hard one. Trade shows have you give you provide you an opportunity to get a new customer. That's what a trade show does. The other thing that it provides for us is an opportunity to interact with the customers that we currently have, because regretfully it is impossible to visit however many stores you're in. Even if you're just in a hundred stores, a hundred stores hard. You know, at this point, I think we're probably in about five hundred stores. There's there's no physical way I could ever visit all 500 accounts, even if I wanted to. So the trade show provides you that opportunity. I'm rather trade shows to me aren't really where the important part is. The important part is when you get that new brand launched onto a shelf, does it get follow-up orders? And I don't mean the second order because the second order is always easy because Anything new hits the shelf. Consumers want to try it all. It's just a reflection of how many people sample the scar out of a given store. Most retailers have an idea as to how many boxes of something new they need because they know how many what's new guys they're going to satisfy. So really, the, the question isn't, you know, parlaying a trade show. 
it's really the question of how do you take a brand that you launched at a trade show four years earlier and actually get it to become a sustainable brand that turns on the shelf for the retailer and actually become a product that a consumer adopts. And also, how do you bridge the point of that trade show love here where you're getting all that attention focused on an individual product, understanding that next year, all of that same amount of attention is going to be focused on a whole bunch of other new products, which may none be yours. Well, you know, like for example, Nicholas didn't attend the trade show this year. So he got none of the trade show love, right? He got none of that free media that he would have normally gotten had he been there. Um, so I look at trade shows like they're kind of in a bubble. I don't, I don't really think that ultimately they determine your success or failure. There's plenty of companies that don't look like they do well at trade shows that uh, are kicking my ass all over the place. Okay. And sell way more cigars than I ever do. I mean, look, I was directly across from the Ashton booth. The Ashton booth was a des desert this year. I guarantee you Ashton is selling probably 20 times the cigars that I'm selling. So is the measurement of success how you do in a trade show? I, I, I don't think it ultimately is. So I, I don't, I don't really, I don't really think that trade shows ultimately are what are going to make you successful or unsuccessful. Now, I think you can go into a trade show with a very unrealistic expectation. I don't think that most new companies that come to a trade show understand how few buyers they really are going to get in that first year, that second year, it, it takes a while to, to build up enough retailers to where it actually starts to crank. And, 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 and I'm a terrible example because I'm kind of a known commodity. You know what I mean? So I had a very good first trade show as an unknown company with an unknown brand. That's not normally the way it works. Normally the way it works is the guy that was directly across from me, the Buho guy that had the Owl cigar. He had a beautiful booth. He spent a lot of money. He had three very attractive women that weren't just attractive. They actually were engaging. And yet he had an utterly disastrous trade show because there was no consumer asking for the product. The retailer had never heard of the product. There was no purpose for the product. So what that guy did is he like spent a ton of money thinking you could buy success at a trade show. And what he really needed to do was spend barely as little money as possible to just physically be there and repeat that process. The money he had spent in year one, he could have stretched into four years and he would have had a much better chance at being ultimately successful. But he didn't know that because it's his first time ever. Um, I, I, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't look at trade shows. I, I just don't look at the sales you do as a trade show as being the ultimate determiner of the success or a failure. Look, and you see how I handle trade shows. I sell no cigars at a trade show bear. I, uh, all my schedule is filled up with interviews. That's all I do. I take a bit. I take, I take as much use of the free media as possible. If you guys are there and you all have your blogs and your YouTube channels and you're the goofy one on TikTok, I talk to everyone. And that's how I use the trade show. Now, my people, they use the trade show to, to write orders and service accounts and, and whatnot. 
And oddly enough, the current size of the trade show for me really works out really, really well, but it eventually won't. Eventually there won't be enough customers there for me to get any growth out of a trade show and add new people. Um, but you know, this last trade show, uh, I think we wrote 75 new accounts and given the fact that of the 525 accounts that were there, we were already in like 380 of them. I look at that as being like, wow, that was a really successful trade show that we managed to get 75 new accounts in the trade show. Now, regretfully, because we've been so far behind, I still think we have like 30 of those accounts we have yet to ship their initial order. Now, thank God we warned them of that when they wrote the order that this was the situation because we had stopped opening new accounts last August and then we reopened it just for the trade show. And then when the trade show was done, we stopped again. Um, but, um, I don't know. I, I, I just don't feel as though your success or failure is hinged on a trade show. Now, where I do think your success or failure is hinged is by being around all the time. The more times you show up, the better. Look, TPE for me is not a good trade show. The customers that go to TPE, they want really well-known legacy brands for the most part. Rocky Patel, Drew Estate, Roman Julieta. Because look, they have discount tobacco outlets. They have head shops that have a, a humidor. Sometimes it's a couple cases. Sometimes it's a walk-in. But they want brands that are really well-known or they want brands that are really inexpensive in bundles because that's what primarily works. The guy that makes the $18 Sin Compromisos out of the specially cultivated tobacco in Mexico means nothing to their consumer. So when I go to TPE, the orders that I write are really just the brick and mortar accounts that are there that are already my customers. But I still chose, I still choose to do it because I feel as though it's important to show face. And I think the more times you show face, the more legit you become in the minds of consumers. The same thing, like I'm always been opposed to the concept of giving a retailer in an area exclusivity on any product. Because consumers need to see that product. They don't all shop at one shop. And they need to see it in five or six retailers they respect before they even start to think of it as, oh, wow, maybe this is a real brand. Maybe I ought to reach in a box and try this. So, again, I just, um, I don't know. I, I know this was not a very succinct answer, and it's just going in big circles. But for me... I just, uh, I, I, I don't think there's a way you build on the success of a trade show. I think you're building more on the success of your day in, day out. And the trade show is just kind of a blip. And it's a convenient opportunity to launch something because there's so much media there to talk about what you're launching. I want to put a pin in you, something you said about, about, uh, about one of the competitors in just a second here, but I want to give Luciano a try. So Luciano, you, you were, you were logging back on and, the introduction to this question was, I, in my opinion, I'm not just saying this because you two happen to be on here, but I've, I've said it before publicly, so you, uh, uh, Steve can't accuse me of sucking up. Um, but um, I, I said that uh, that the that Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust and a, the Ace Prime Crown Heads Collective probably had two of the two of the bright stars of the the PCA trade show. You guys had probably the most successful trade show uh, out of all the companies in my mind, uh, with you know, probably a couple of others uh, in that, in that mix. Right. So you guys had a very successful trade show. 
And this is your second, you know, for all intents and purposes, this is your second trade show. You, you burst on the scene in 2019 and uh, with, with, the launch of, with the launch of Ace Prime and everything. So this was really your, your second kind of go around and everything. Which, that was a successful trade show in your, as well. But how does, how does a company, in your mind, Steve just answered it, but in your mind, how, does, how do you parlay the success of a trade show into ultimately continue the momentum afterwards? Like, how, how, do, you, how do you go past the, 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 the trade show hangover, if you will? So I, I listened to, uh, to some of uh, Steve's answer. I think, I think he's right. Um, I can say that I experienced two completely different trade shows for us. 2019 was more like, you know, these guys have, that have been making cigars for 12 years for so many brands. Now they launched their own brands and we had to kind of uh, show our presence. Uh, and uh, I think the show was extremely good for us in 2019. I mean, we had zero accounts uh, of our own lines and then we, we signed in uh, 110 accounts in, you know, in a trade show, like going from zero to a hundred was a big deal for us. I would say that's so very like, successful as a new company, but you were, you were with crowd heads, right? When you did no, that. At, 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 no, at that time was just us, just Ace Prime. Oh, that's when you we did really well with that, Luciano. That's a good number. We, we did. And I know yeah. that uh, I was talking to John the other day. He said that his first trade show, he write, I think 67 accounts. So for us, it was a very successful trade show. However, uh, again, we, uh, we had new brands and now having that second order was a challenge for us. So keeping you know, uh, clients who'd never met a brand, who just kind of tried our cigars for the first time, reordered uh, was a big challenge. And I, I, we're kind of lucky that we didn't have a trade show on uh, 2020, to be honest, because if we had a trade show in 2020, most likely, I don't think we'll have the same success or not even close. Uh, of course, we, you know, 2020 already had the partnership with Crown Heads uh, that will probably make a little difference. But this show this year, I mean, for me, was was a new thing because I never experienced that. It was crazy. Like we had... Uh, you know, all, all the sales team were booked up every 15 minutes, uh, nonstop. Those guys, I mean, some of them, or most of them didn't eat any of the day. So they have to wait until like the show closed to go and, and grab a bite. So this guy's basically fast the entire trade show because that's how busy they were. Uh, for me, again, just like Steve was more like talking to the media, talking to you guys. I mean, my part was actually fun. You know, I didn't have to, <laughs> didn't have to kind of, you know, stay, uh, you know, stand up all the time and and and, and uh, deal with uh, with the new accounts and uh, and the new orders and stuff. So, but I, I see what I see what Steve's saying because I I know we have so many fans. We made cigar for so many people, so I know a lot of people who spend so much money into the trade shows and they just got burned out because, again, they put their entire budget into a show believing that they would make a lot of money. And you know that's not true. You don't. You can establish a brand in one show. That's why I agree with Steve when he says that. You know, like it's not a trade show that ultimately you know establish you in, in this market. It's absolutely not. So it's uh, it's actually uh, you know it's time. It's it's a lot of hard work, but it's time. You know, it takes time for people to recognize to have your products all distributed well. So a, a a good sales team is much more important than one show once a year. 
you know, just mm-hmm. having just having people like you know really working the grassroots and and, and visiting shops and and and, uh, and and promoting the brand. It's what really what really works. Now I believe that the show is really important. So I, you know my position about that. I I, mm-hmm. I think actually the sh- well let, let me rephrase this. I believe trade shows are going to disappear very soon. So I think it's it's uh, it's an animal that's dying. You know, it's not. I don't believe that trade shows will actually uh, continue to be what they are. And year by year, you're going to see the trade shows uh, fading away. This is my personal opinion. Um, and as part of the A and B to the to the PC, I have said that numerous times uh, to all the board, everybody at PCA. So they know they know my opinion. I think they have to find a different. Uh, source of uh, income, they have to really provide content. And I think they are, they are stepping up, they're changing, they're doing great things. Um, but I, I agree with Steve, I think that I think the trade shows is not a term factor. But I think it's important as an opportunity. And, and I think probably for the next five years, trade shows will continue to be important. Uh, and we have to be there, you know, we have to show up. Uh, I think it was great that the show was much smaller this year, especially for brands like uh, like you know, uh, CLE or or us and, and uh, same for us. Alec, Alec Bradley, the same for them. The, the retailers spent more time food, giving us an opportunity to have longer discussions with them because they didn't have to do their Davidoff, Drew Estate, General, or Altidus, which are yeah. always two to three hour sit downs with those companies to go through their entire portfolios. So mm-hmm. we obviously got more time. But it actually kind of worked against me, too. I realized that in this smaller format, I'm going to have to bring two more bodies in order to handle the flow because the retailers have more time and therefore we have to give them more time than we normally would. So oddly enough, the costs are going to go up a little bit for me. But for me, as as long as the ROI and the other thing that was very different for me at this year's trade show is. I made the decision this year not to offer any deals or discounts. And I did that for a couple of reasons. Um, one, well, let's be honest, a little greedy. I like the extra money, but that actually wasn't the driving factor. <laughs> the driving factor was that I had back orders with customers who have been just placing on the regular turn order. And if I hadn't sent the guy his box of whatever, me, Querido, Ancho Largos that he ordered 60 days ago, why should I give a guy 10 points off on it two months later that's buying at the trade show? It just seemed unfair to the customer that had been already waiting 60 days. And so we just kind of went into it with that, which probably hurt us dollar wise. We probably would have sold 20 to 30% more if there had been some sort of incentive to make a retailer to buy heavier. But then I'm also kind of compounding my problem. And if I'm already working in a back order situation, why do I want to encourage a retailer to order more than what he actually needs at the moment um, Because and do it at a discount that really is just going to exasperate the situation? So for me, it was kind of nice because when I was at Drew Estate, and I, I hope this has changed for them, but when I was at Drew Estate, those orders we wrote at the trade show, it basically made us a, a not-for-profit company for two to three months of every year. I mean, those trade shows, when you looked at the deals that were extended at them 
and the way the retailers would buy them. Yeah, it was great to walk out of a trade show saying, wow, we sold this many millions of dollars at the trade show. But when you actually looked at the bottom line, it was kind of like we were really just moving a lot of furniture around the room to fulfill these orders. You would have actually been better off to not have to do all that work. But it's also a question of what your focus is as a company. Are you focusing on profit? Are you focusing on a limited number of accounts? Are you focusing on shelf space and market share? You know, in a company like Drew Estate, they've always been focused on market share. It's kind of been the, the way they approach that. You know, that, and that is the way the big companies have to do it for the most part. The smaller companies don't. They can, they can kind of navigate their own way. I think trade shows have been dead for a long time. I think what ultimately ends up, I think the importance of getting together has a lot of value, but I'd like to see the trade show kind of go more the TAA direction, where it's just more events and get togethers and parties and activities and seminars. And let's not worry so much about the selling of stuff. Yeah, we have the new product introductions and whatnot, but I think we could, I think we could really. I really think we could scale it back and do it a lot more economically and actually even earn the PCA more money for the coffers, you know, because in the end, the more people that attend, the better. And if we're just talking about having to go someplace to buy cigars, well, they don't have to leave their sofa to do that. They're not going to fly to Vegas. The people that come to the trade show, they come to the trade show because they like being part of the cigar community. They like actually talking to the manufacturers. They like seeing the new stuff with their own eyes, but they're not coming there to buy. They do buy, but they're going to buy anyways. They need to buy. They have retail stores. Yeah, maybe I can milk that guy for a little more money. Maybe that manufacturer over there can milk him for a little more money. But in the end, cigars sell at what they sell. You can't force sales. In the end, we need the consumer to pull the cigar out of the box we need him to light it on fire. We need him to enjoy it enough that he reaches back into the box again. That, that, that's where our business is. It's built on repeat consumption. Yeah, we make a luxury product, but in the end, it's a commodity good is what we're manufacturing. And in order for it to be successful, it requires constant consumption. And constant consumption cannot be created in three days of one year. That's not the way it works. It's, it's so much so what, what makes you long-term successful is not a trade show at all. Well, to your point earlier, and this is what I wanted to bring up, Steve, was you, you, know, you, you brought up your neighbor at this year's trade show, Ashton, which you know, the booth was, was pretty dismal. Uh, as you mentioned, like, there, wasn't, there wasn't, wasn't a lot of traffic going through it. Right. Uh, even with the launch of, they did launch a new cigar and everything. And to your point, you know, Ashton will still smell you know, will outsell Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust and probably Ace Prime combined. Oh, easy. Um, but, but, Sorry, Luciano, I don't know what you sell, but, but yeah. But isn't, gonna... <laughs> no, but isn't that, but, but isn't that, isn't that longevity though? Isn't that what you two are building? Right. Towards? And that's what you're talking about. You're talking about consistently showing up and playing the game and, you know, and look, it's the reason why, why do I do so many damn podcasts? I do them because, there might be two people that have never heard me talk that get to hear me talk tonight. And maybe that's the reason why when they go into a retail store, they go, hey, what's that Muester de Saka? I, I saw that guy's fat head 
I'm kind of curious. Let me grab <laughs> Let me try that. You know what I mean? And, and that's really what it's about is trying to introduce as many people as possible. I mean, in the end, the cigar is going to speak for itself. Okay. The consumer is going to make a decision. Yay or nay. The challenge is, is how do I get the consumer to try my product instead of another product? And, and that's, and that's what this type of thing is about more than anything else is trying to give the re- the consumer a reason to reach into the box and try something that they've never had before. And, 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 let, and let's be honest, let's be honest. So again, who is uh, Ashton's uh, blender again? Puente. Uh, and and D- Don Pepe. Oh, blender, yeah, they, blender. They have the two. Yeah, so, but again, they're, they're not blending actually for their own brain. So they are, they're, they're making this, their cigars, right? Uh, and, you know, technically, like Steve makes his cigars with other factories, but he blends. So he's responsible for the taste profile of the cigars he's making. My point is, go go to Altaris. Who is the blender of Altaris? There's, there's many. Many. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, you have to, you have to kind of, what, what's, what's the face? Who's behind the creation? You know, who's behind that? Again, I think there is a huge opportunity for uh, for companies uh, like ours. Again, I'm not talking this in a diminishing way. I'm not saying, you know, I respect a lot. I have a lot of friends who work for Altadis, a lot of friends who work for Ashton. So again, what I'm saying is uh, we have, uh, this industry has always been made of people who are passionate about what they do. At a certain point, you know, depending on how you grow and how, how big you become, sometimes it becomes more of a business less than the, you know, the, the real passion. Uh, I, I mean, this is my choice. I choose to be who I am. I've been making cigars for, I made cigars for Altos. I made cigars for all these guys for, for a long time, but I choose to be someone who make the cigars for our own brands, for a, a partner that it's becoming more and more part of who we are. Uh, Again, it's a, it, it's a choice. And I think, uh, in my opinion, that the, there's a reason why companies like Steve's, ours, uh, you know, uh, Alan Rubin, Christian Aroa, all these companies are, are getting more and more of the market share. You know? Because uh, there's, a, there's a face and the passion's still there. Well, I think the important thing to focus on is that uh, that that I, I should feel honored that that Steve is using my show not to celebrate my birthday, but to find the two three two or three people that have never heard him before and, and sell more cigars. So Always. I'm I'm honored. I've never I've never been you know it's one of the things that I've never been shy about. I have <laughs> always admitted that I I am in this business as a business to make a profit. If this was just about cigars entirely, from my point of view. I go to Nicaragua every year and make five to 7,000 cigars that I love and I'll be perfectly fine. So I, I do, I do, I treat it as a business. The thing that I care about is there's a lot of things that I want to do. And the only way I can do them is if I have money. And therefore the business funds me to do my Sin Compromiso crop in Mexico, to do my hybridized seed project in Nicaragua, to start growing a particular filler in, in Jalapa with two farmers. You know what I mean? So it's kind of weird. Like, so like when I look at sales, for me, I want to make sure everyone's getting paid. I want to make sure the company has good cash flow. But really what I'm looking for 
is are we selling enough to cover what I'm spending? Because I spend money like a fiend. You know, I'm always spending money. I'm always investing in something, buying something. I have something that I want to try, something I want to do. And I can't do that without a company. I, I'm, I'm not rich enough to just do it entirely on my own. And so for hey, me, Steve, do you know, do, do the, know that joke? the company becomes, it just means the more I get to play. And that's the part that I like about it. Do you know that joke? Uh, do you know uh, how to make $5 million in the, in the cigar industry? Yes, I've heard this joke a million times. <laughs> Start with 10. <laughs> Start with 10. Start with 10. In the reality, oh, seriously, most go I'm broke. Not- I mean, it's the way that our business works. I'm I'm here I'm here in DR right now and uh, tomorrow I'll be with Ernesto Carrillo and uh, we're gonna visit some other people. We are selling tobacco here, buying, trading tobacco, buying tobacco. Um, I remember being here like 12 years ago, and that was the first thing that Ernie told me when I decided to get into this business. He said, uh, "Do you uh, do you really want to make money? Just just don't." Don't start this business because you're not going to make any money here. It's going to take you a long, long time to make money. And uh, and for me, fortunately, it wasn't it wasn't about money, you know. But of course, you know, being able to create a sustainable business, being able to to have profit and change the lives of of people, uh, you know, especially you know the people we have in Nicaragua, and being able to create an impact in their lives and, and, and somehow do something good it's always been a kind of a motive an extra motivation or actually the main motivation for uh for us to move forward but it has to be a business it has to be sustainable of course you know we have to we cannot just give things away uh, there are a lot of lives that depend on it and uh no it's just and i, I can assure you it's not just mine you know there's, there's hundreds of people that depends on what we do and uh but you know, we can do it with passion, we can do it without passion. And you, you have definitely uh, two guys here tonight. I have no doubt that Steve has is full of passion just by listening to him and knowing a little bit of his history and what he has done for the industry, you know. I mean, if you don't have the passion, man, if you're not really uh, willing to uh, to sacrifice it. Again, you're, you know, we all travel these crazy hours, being in Nicaragua, being here, being there, doing events, <laughs> doing all this stuff. Uh, it's because we love what we do. So this, this is my second to last question, and this is a little bit of a fun one. Um, so Steve, you, you were talking about making money and, um, and you know, we, you both are in the business of making cigars to sell them. Right. We, and you, and, but, uh, to, uh, but the kind of joke we were throwing around earlier and everything was about the Lancero, right? And I, I finished up the the Dreamer earlier. It was fantastic, uh, Luciano as always. So had several of those. I love I love them. Uh, I also like Steve's uh, now leave me the hell alone. Um, but I was found it interesting that both of you des- decided to make a Lancero, um, but not only just make a Lancero for the sake of making a Lancero. You also put it in your, I would call it in your 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 featured ultra premium sector you know you put it under the luciano brand luciano and and steve you put it in the muesta de saca uh portfolio you know for i'll, I'll start with steve steve since you hate the vitola so much <laughs> what first why did you decide to make it i 
the name would suggest why you did, but why, and then why did you decide to put it in the Moester de Saka portfolio? Well, it's actually a perfect fit for the Moester Saka portfolio because every cigar in the Moester portfolio is one that's something different. That's a challenge for me that I wouldn't normally do. So like the Exclusiva, which was the first one, all the materials in that cigar have a minimum bale age on them of five years. I don't tend to like tobaccos that have been aged that long. Most of the filler materials that I like to use are between one and two years. I don't, there isn't, I don't tend to make cigars with like really super aged materials. Um, I just always find them a little dull and a little lifeless and they're just not, they don't suit my palate. So the challenge was, Hey, can I make a cigar that I'd be willing to smoke and buy, you know, at this price point, you know, the second one is probably one of the cigars I'm most proud of is Naka Tamale. Um, Naka Tamale is a true farm style cigar. Naka Tamale has two tobaccos in it. There is one leaf variety that's used for both the wrapper and the binder. And the entire filler is one single crop from one single farm, one seed variety. There is only two tobaccos in a Naka Tamale. And it's the way cigars for many, many years, and look, Cuban cigars, there's an authorized filler crop and there's an authorized wrapper binder crop. And this is what you have. And gentlemen go to it. And the only way you can introduce any sort of complexity in the cigar is by how you work those materials in pre-industry and then how you choose to blend them and position them in the cigar to try to make something that's really one ingredient interesting enough to smoke. Um, so the Lancero being the fact that I'm not a fan of the Lancero, that's, that's a challenging cigar for me to make. I'm struggling with one now. I, I was supposed to release Krakatoa in 2020. It never got off the blending table because I couldn't go to Nicaragua. I picked it back up in 2021, thinking I was going to be done with it in 2021. I'm right now sitting in October, and I'm still not 100% satisfied with the blend, even though I made the damn cigars already. Coming out of the cool room, they're not really giving me what I really want. And I find myself saying, hmm, what am I going to do with this Krakatoa thing? Krakatoa is supposed to be a pepper bomb. Well, I'm struggling to make a pepper bomb that I think it's worth spending $17, $18 for. I smoke and I go, why would I smoke this instead of a cigar that uh, Pete makes for Tatuai? Why would I smoke this instead of a cigar Papine smokes or makes? Why would I, why would I buy this instead of a, a chisel from, uh, from La Florida Minicon? And if I can't get over that hurdle, I'm just going to put Krakatoa on the back shelf and I'll do something else. So it made sense for me for the Lancer to go into that line because it's all about personal challenges. So what was your head? I'm sorry, Luciano. Go ahead. So you have a question? I was going to say, what, you know, why, why did you ultimately cave to it? Steve? If you don't like it so much, was it, was it the challenge you, you wanted to prove you could do it? Look, I always was going to make one. Come on, let's get real. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just, it's just, the problem with Lanceros is they just, they're not big sellers. I'm, I'm stunned. I mean, so I launched the now leave me the hell alone. And look, there's small box quantities, right? Seven in a box. It's more, it's more coffins and wood than anything else. There's not that much tobacco in a box and now leave me the hell alone. I don't know the exact number, but I bet I've sold 20,000 of those 20,000 boxes of that. 
which is really a stunning number for a Lancero. I've never, I've never had a Lancero be this successful in any company I've ever been in there. They're almost always one hit wonders. The Lancero customers don't tend to revisit the same Lancero. They tend to buy an entire box and smoke one or two out of it and then put in their Lancero shrine and talk about what a great Lancero it was for the next 10 years. Unlike the Toro guy, he ends up loving whatever, a Mike Rita Toro, and he'll buy the whole box and he'll smoke it and he'll buy another box and he'll smoke it and he'll, you know, he'll keep doing that. That's not very common with the Lancero guys. The Lancero guys, they're much more about the format and the Vitola than they even are about the blend that's in the Vitola. And they tend to jump very quickly. So from a commercial point of view, Lanceros are a really, really tough sell. They just, and I can tell you right now, even with the now leave me the hell alone, had I made something that was more a traditional high volume selling brand, I would have sold way more of it, like Unstolen Valor. So way more Unstolen Valor and Exclusivos than I sell of Naka Tamales and now leave me the hell alone. In my opinion, Naka Tamale is the best one, but the two Toros, they way outsell the other two. It's just that simple. So there's a, it's an interesting story. I remember, I mean, Steve and I have bumped into each other here and there, but actually our first interaction was at CPE. I don't know if you remember this, Steve, but I think we are, uh, I think the guys are finishing like assembling the booth and came to you and I handled my, my Lancero. And then he said, no, don't waste your Lancero on me. <laughs> and I, 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 I remember that. But listen, I think Lanceros are, they are a niche. Uh, I think, so I always believe that Lanceros don't sell. I, you know, but I really decided to try. Um, and uh, and I, what I found out is that, you know, a lot of people don't like Lanceros because again, you know, most of the Lanceros, I mean, it's, it's sad to say this, but you know, 50, maybe 70%, they are always have draw issues and you have issues with, uh, with keeping consistency in the flavor too. They all mellow down too quick. Um, it's a hard bitola to work with. So I look at it as a niche and I decided to make a Lancero that would, uh, you know, fill that niche and uh, the people would enjoy. We start as a, as a limited uh, production, as a limited series. And but we start selling the hell out of it. And we said, well, why not making a regular line? You know, the, the 100, 100% of the fillers we control, we grow the tobacco. I mean, uh, why not making it a regular line? And then, you know, a few months ago, we decided to make a regular line because it's selling. But again, uh, it, of course, it's not our, our top seller, but it, you know, it, it sells a considerable amount of cigars. And uh, it's been a good flagship for us too. So. I think there's a, there's a niche there, uh, which, you know, again, whoever is able to uh, present a Lancero in the market that draws and have a good flavor, I think that uh, that trend can change. You know? well, it's, all, too, again, it's all about trends. You know? The nice thing, too, is when you have a Lancero, because the Lancero guys are so loud, when you're a small company, if you produce a good Lancero, you're really getting a lot more marketing out of that than you are some other things. So it can be really helpful as a small company. But in the grand scheme of things, Lanceros just look, the reality is you can make Toro, Robusto, and Gigantes, and that's 80% of the market. 
We can make three Vitolas and that would cover 80% of all the sales. Now we all have exceptions within our brands that are unique, that sell really super, super well. But if you take all the cigars consumed by all the Americans every year, 80% of them are Robusto Toro Gigantes. That's what they are. That's it. All the other stuff, Torpedoes, Lonsdales, Coronas, Lanceros, Perfectos, all that other stuff, all together equals about 20% of the total sales. I know you guys have been around long enough to see this, but Luciano just mentioned trends a second ago. What's happened to, what's happened to the Torpedo? That was the that was the that was the Vitola years ago. I mean, everyone was making them some to their detriment, unfortunately. That's why I'm not a particular fan of it, just because there's so many people that make it and don't know how to make it well. But what what happened to the torpedo? It's, it's a pain yes to me. We make some. I mean, uh, you know, the, the Pichardo uh uh, well, actually, I was, I, I'm always giving up something. Uh, we actually are making one that will be launched soon. Okay. Under the Pichardo line or? Yeah, so you're already, already hurt, so. Okay. <laughs> what were you going to say, Steve? Um, look, these things, things go in and out of favor. I mean, there was a point where Americans only wanted to smoke blonde wrappers. There was a point where, you know, people only wanted to smoke mild. There was a point where everybody wanted to smoke super hot and spicy. I mean, we, we, we tend to always go through these trends and torpedoes are a trend that's down right now. Um, but they'll bounce back. They always do. These things tend to be cyclic. They, uh, there's a generation that uh, that ends up picking them up and they become special again for whatever reason. I don't find torpedoes overall to be as hard to make anymore because of molds. I mean, back in the day when you had to do them in paper, there was a lot of skill in making a torpedo. I think there's less skill in making a torpedo today than there used to be. It's really just a matter of just figuring out how to do the filler properly at the head. And once you get that skill down, it's very repeatable. And actually, from the perspective of finishing the torpedo with the Rolera, it's actually less work to, to put the wrapper on a torpedo than it is to do a true, you know, mounted finished head. The mounted finished head takes longer than doing the finish on the torpedo. It's just consumers, just for whatever reason, it's fallen out of favor. And I wonder if part of it has to do with just how outside of the Asian market, the fact that a lot of Cuban cigars have kind of started to fall out of favor with a lot of consumers internationally outside of the Asian market, uh, gangbusters in the Asian market. And for them, the flagship for many, many years, obviously was Monte Cristo number two. Monte Cristo was the number two was kind of like the cigar that even if you knew nothing about cigars, you knew about a Monte Cristo number two. Right. And it kind of, you know, kind of set a point where, Oh, well, this is special because it's a torpedo. Um, you know, me personally, I, I like the bullet heads, you know, because it lets you have a larger ring gauge cigar, but yet when you taper down to a bullet head, it gives it a better mouth feel. So I find myself 
gravitating more towards kind of that 109 style head. Um, but there are not a lot of molds out there that are ready. So you always have to make custom molds if you want to do that style of a head because there's not, it's not like the other stuff that's just readily always available. Um, but I think it's just, a, I think it's just a, a cycle that we're in now. I guarantee you 10, 15 years from now, torpedoes will once again be wildly popular and bloggers will be talking about how amazing they are and <laughs> magazines will be writing articles about the art of the torpedo and torpedo sales again will pick up. Just, it's just kind of the way it goes. Fair enough. Well, gentlemen, again, I can't thank you enough for all of your time tonight. We've got my last question, which is always my curveball question coming to you. And always, and as always, it's brought to you by Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust. Fastballs or curveballs? Doesn't matter since the company's inception. Steve Saka has been knocking them out of the park. Six consecutive years in the consensus top three. Yeah, I looked up that stat, and I even got fact-checked on it myself. So, um, So here's the question, gentlemen. If you could, so back to the subject, we talked a little bit about birthdays. We talked about children. So if, and you guys can take it any way you want. You can be comical about it, can be serious about it. It's completely up to you. But if you could convince your children that something was absolutely positively true, what would it be? That's a tough question. That's why it's open-ended. You could have fun with it if you want, or it could be serious, however you guys wanted to take it. You know, I mean, this is this would be my answer, but it's impossible. I would love to think that I could get my young sons to listen a little closer and take some of the lessons that I have learned through my mistakes, that'll just make their lives easier to not make the same mistakes that I've made. But just in the way that I didn't listen to my father, my sons don't listen to me either. And what eventually always happens is they get to a certain age and then they kind of go, wow, the old man wasn't as stupid as I thought he was. He was actually right. You know, and I think all of us eventually get to that point as people we realize that about our mother. We realize that about our father. And I, I wish there was some way to shorten that where it didn't take you 20 plus years to finally come to that conclusion, because I think I could save them an awful lot of misery. Uh, I can make their lives a lot easier if they, but you can't, you can't force them. You can't berate them. You can't badger them. You can just, you know, show them the water, but you can't make them drink the water. But if there's any one thing I could change, I, I wish I could do that because I think, uh, I think, uh, I think it just, I just know, I, I wish I had paid closer attention to what my father was talking to me about when I was a young man. It would have made a difference. I guess it's my turn, huh? Yes, sir. So I'll go. I'll go for the short, short answer here. I think uh, that I love them, and there's nothing they can do to make me love them more or less. I just love them without expecting anything back. I'm gonna cry. That's so sweet. <laughs> well, it's it's both encouraging and like that. Like, cause you know, it's. 
one of the things we're struggling right now, Steve, with, with my, with my boys, especially my oldest, you know, he's six. Right. And one of the biggest struggles is getting him to listen. And yeah. so I guess it, I guess you're, what you're telling me in your experience, it doesn't change the older they get, they still don't listen. Uh, so the, uh, so the lessons they'll, they'll learn hopefully uh, will be that, you know, one day that they'll realize that maybe I wasn't, maybe I wasn't so full of it. Um, but maybe, uh, the mistakes that they'll learn will, will allow them to, uh, to become their own, but to also Luciana, to your point, one thing I always tell my sons every night, uh, as I put them, cause I put, I'm, I'm lucky. I get to put, I know you, uh, you gentlemen travel quite a bit, so you're not there as home as much as you'd like to be. I'm not talking my 37 year old in, so don't worry true, about that. True so. story. True story. But <laughs> I, I tell them every night, uh, I tell them, don't ever forget how much I love you. And I don't want them to ever forget. So to Luciano's point that, you know, I don't love them any less. I won't love them anymore, but that I absolutely love them. If I could get them to, I get them to know that that would be, that'd be something. That would be something. For I, think sure. it's a, I think it's a universal truth that every parent wants the life of their child to be better than their life. Mm-hmm. They want them to have more opportunity, more success. That's, that's what you want as a parent, right? That's everything that you do is to strive towards that goal. And, uh, and I think it's it'd be look. And when you're when you're 17 and you're rebellious, you don't realize that you don't think about it in those terms. You you kind of look at your parents as a roadblock. Where really, what your parents want to be is they want to be a facilitator. They want to be a, fac- a facilitator for your success and joy in life, is what they actually really want. I know there's exceptions, uh. but. It's a type of love that just, uh, it's hard to understand unless you are, you are, you are a parent, unless you are a father or mother. Like, um, in our society, there's always like this value exchange mentality. Like, I give something so I receive something. It's hard to conceive the type of love where you just give and, and you're not expecting absolutely nothing in return. I mean, it only happens really between, you know, uh, I believe, I believe, you know, kids and parents, you know, and, and you know, where there's absolutely no expectation. I mean, you just do it not because you're going to get anything in return. You just do it because you love them. And uh, it's something uh, hard to explain, isn't it? Well, absolutely. Well, I, you know, if I've had the, the good fortune, I, I met your, one of your daughters at this year's trade show, Luciano, and I've, I've met your son, Steve at a couple of trade shows now and and I, I've I've been able to observe them and I could it was it was really great for me to meet your daughter Luciana because I could actually she I don't know if you remember that she she handed you a burger because you were talking about how the guys didn't eat you didn't eat either and uh mm-hmm. um just the little exchange that you had with your daughter over a simple hamburger um I could tell um you know just I could tell how much how much love you had for her and how much she had for you and Steve, I could tell how much John has, how much respect he has for you. Um, just in some of the little exchanges that I've seen in, in, in a trade show booth, it's, 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 it's great to see that. So I think you both accomplished a little bit of your goals that you kind of. I think that's one of the things that makes our business really good is that it still at its core can be a family business. And I think that's the part that is so just disturbing about the, the trend of the consolidation and the mega corporations and 
now that we're getting all the suits involved and they're looking at everything on a balance sheet, they're looking at everything from, hey, what's the best way to financially structure this thing to make the most? It's uh, our, our business is in a really weird place right now. It's kind of a tale of two cities because even 20 years ago, the big mega companies, they were still family owned and operated. And even Altidus, it wasn't family owned and operated, but it was employee owned and operated. I mean, the president of Altidus, Theo Fultz, he used to be a door to door cigar salesman by Uke back in the day. And he worked his way up in the company. And now so many of these companies are really just run by nameless suit guys with MBAs. They really don't care about cigars. They don't care about tobacco. They don't care about the camaraderie. They just they look at everybody as just a wallet and a number. And they're just trying to get into as many wallets as as many numbers as they possibly can get into. And, uh, and that, and that, and that's something that, um, you know, I never want to discourage a consumer from buying somebody else's cigars, but I would like to encourage consumers to try some of the cigars made by some of the small family companies. Because I think those cigars are really the ones that are the most exceptional in the marketplace. They are the ones that are the most interesting. They are the ones that deliver some of the best experiences. And it's not something that you're going to get out of the other companies. Uh, yeah, will you get a very consistent cigar of the other companies? You will. Will you get a cigar that's at an efficient price point? Yes, you'll get a cigar at an efficient price point. But you you rarely get greatness out of those companies anymore. It's, it's, it's more the exception than the rule. Whereas I think there's a lot of small makers that really make a lot of really, really, really great cigars. And it's, you know, getting consumers to give the opportunity to small brands. It's one of the things that, you know, people always kind of like, I never look at somebody like Crown Heads or Roma Craft or Foundation or those companies as competitors. Uh, for me, the competitor is Davidoff. The competitor is Altidus. The competitor is STG. The competitor is Swisher. That's the competitor. That, that's, that's whose lunch I want to eat. I don't, I don't want to eat from Luciano's lunch. Okay, how, how, much is, how much can Luciano steal from me? How much can I steal from him? You know what I mean? There's nothing there, you know? So for me, the more makers that are out there that are like legit, that are like really involved in the products and are really making good cigars and are really making interesting things that are in the small weight class, it actually makes the industry stronger and it actually makes our individual company stronger. Because if a customer has a bad experience reaching into three or four unknown name brand boxes that makes them less likely to reach into my unknown name box too you know what i mean so it actually behooves us for there to be good young makers making things this is one of the reasons why it's nice to see somebody like henderson ventura kind of step out on his own and start to make brands in his own name he's been making cigars his him and his father have been making cigars for other people for a long time. You've been making cigars for a while for other people for a long time. I, I think the more of those people that can come out of the shadows actually makes the overall health of the industry better for everybody. 
I think it makes it better for the consumer. And I actually also think it even makes it better for me too. Uh, I, I think that, uh, I think it's one of those, uh, a rising tide floats all boats. And so small, successful, passionate young companies, I'm always excited about. I'll tell you what I'm not excited about. I'm not excited about when I see somebody like Cornelius and Anthony, somebody that has a lot of cigarette money. Not that Stephen Bailey was a bad guy. He wasn't. He's a great guy. But he just kind of like starts a company out of thin air, going to get in the cigar business, has tons of money, can afford to get things made. But it just is kind of a brand just made in a test tube. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like a marketing idea and a marketing execution. And this is how we're going to do it. And then we're going to find, for all I know, Luciano may have made some of those cigars for Cornelius and Anthony. So I'm not commenting on the quality of the cigars, but it really, it isn't really connected to the manufacturer. You know what I mean? Yeah. It really is something that's really just kind of a marketing play. And, uh, and I, I think that, uh, and I think that does a disservice to us as an industry, to be honest with you, just the same way as someone making poor quality cigars reflects badly on everybody. I, I wish you guys were a little harsher with your ratings. I think you guys are a little too generous sometimes, maybe you're even sometimes too generous with me. So asking for lower ratings is not necessarily a very smart thing for me to do, but I don't find the, I do not find everything to be 88 to 92. I have some cigars that are definite F's and D's and C's and B's and A's. Okay. They definitely exist in the marketplace, but just the way reviews work, we tend to end up with essentially a five point scale. It's kind of what we've ended up with with the exception of a few outliers that, wow, that was so amazing, it goes above, or wow, it was so sucky, it's an 85, right? But uh, we're still at a 10-point scale, even at that rate. And I I think that also does a little bit of a disservice to the consumer. But I understand why it happens, because you can't rate cigars really completely honestly, because then no one would ever want to talk to you. (laughs) <laughs> and you're in the business of talking to people and generating media, right? So how, how does that work? I mean, I, I completely understand the predicament, but I, I do, like, I, and I think over time, I think consumers can start to kind of, if they pay enough attention, they can decode. Like, I, I know, like, when I look at, I know when I look at certain sites, if the number is this or the comment is that, I really know they didn't think it was that good a cigar, even though it got a cigar score that's very relative to all the others, but that, that requires you to be very perceptive, uh, you know, but yeah, I think, uh, I, I think our industry, I think the only hope of our industry continuing to do well, as long as there are smaller, younger companies that are willing to be innovative and push the envelope, the large companies never will. The only time they do it is because they get forced to do so by the smaller companies. That's why that happens. That's very good. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, I have kept you long and late and I do appreciate it. This was a fantastic show, a fantastic conversation uh, with two uh, exceptional gentlemen that I enjoy the company of. And uh, 
I really appreciate both y'all's time tonight. It's been an absolute, absolute incredible, incredible conversation. So thank you all for your time. It means a lot to me. Uh, you know, Luciano, you're abroad. Steve, you had an exhausting last couple of weeks. Uh, so the time that uh, that you've given me tonight, I, I is not lost to me. I really greatly appreciate it. So thank you. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, it's without been a pleasure, let me uh, just tell tell you well, happy birthday. I know it's uh, it's two days from now, but uh, if we don't if we don't talk to each other, I'll make sure I'll text you or call I you. But, uh, I won't text you, Bear. If you post a picture of you wearing some goofy party hat with a pom pom on top, I might make a comment. Okay, that's fair. It's fair enough. I'll get a I'll get a snicker out of Steve. I appreciate it. Yeah, happy with. And I want to I want to also thank you, Steve, for tonight. It was great talking to you. You said something really important that really resonated my heart in the in the last uh, five minutes right now. And I uh, I am very thankful that you said what you said. So we're, we are in this together. We really are, whether we realize it or not. I, I, it was the first lesson I had when I when I got to Drew Estate, when I told them, because when I first got to Drew Estate, they looked at Pete as their competition and CAO as their competition and LaFleur as their competition. I'm like, just stop. They're not your competitors. Those guys way up there. That are selling tens and tens and tens of millions of cigars. Those those are the competitors. Those, those those are the guys that we have to chip away at. And the only way we can chip away at them is if we make really better cigars. Because they have all the branding, they have all the sales team, they have all the marketing dollars, they have all the legacy, they have every single advantage. The only advantage they do not have is they can't make cigars better than you can make cigars. You can make cigars just as good as they can. And I argue that you can make cigars better than they can. Okay. Because of the scale in which they're trying to do it. So that that's where we have to fight the battle. And it's why I always find it very disturbing when I see a small manufacturer start to go into the, let me get into the bundle business. Let me get into the $5 cigar business. Let me get into the $6 cigar business. You can't, as a brand owner, or even as a small manufacturer, compete there. Just leave it alone, walk away, don't touch it. You have no business being there. You're going to lose at that battle. The only place that you can compete is by actually genuinely making better products. And that's what we should all be focused on as small companies, is just really making exceptional, exceptional products because that's how we take dollars out of their pocket. Amen. Well, for everyone out there, I really appreciate staying up late with us as well. Thank you for all of your likes, shares, and comments. You can check out a calendar of upcoming events on the Elo Supumar Facebook page. Check out our YouTube channel as well, Elo Supumar. If you're listening to us later on podcasts, whether you listen to podcasts, whether that be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Podbean, or iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to podcasts, be sure you hit the download, subscribe, and review button. If you are a subscriber, as always, I encourage you to unsubscribe, but don't forget to resubscribe that helps my numbers and helps me get exceptional guests like these two gentlemen tonight for everyone out there this was our 187th take yes it was my birthday take i'll try not to celebrate too much uh, in honor of steve and we'll thank you for all of it we'll see you guys next week for 188th take it's my pleasure i'm barry duplissy live from the alec bradley lone star studio of Euless, texas and guess what everybody 
We'll see you next time.